Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, August 16th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. You should be in a good mood this morning. I am. Why are you in a good mood this morning? 13 to 1. It's all about the Braves. <laughs> right You're now You're centers around the Braves. This week. This work is secondary. <laughs> this responsibility and job of which I need you laser focused <laughs> as Robin and the dynamic duo. Yep. Well, you're, you're worried too much about those breaks. I was paying attention, but I, I mean, I, I actually didn't stay up late enough to watch them score all those runs. There's been an hour rain delay in the middle of the game, so I watched a little bit after the rain delay, and that was it. So there's a four game series between the Braves and the Mets. That's the problem with getting up early and coming to work. Yeah, well, I mean, it's this, but it's kind of what you got to do. Yeah, you know, um, uh, the Braves went 13-1, if I'm not mistaken. A couple of home runs in the second inning. I didn't watch any after the um. After the rain delay, I kind of got doing my thing and fell asleep with a computer in my lap. Um, it's always, I mean, it's not happened a lot, but you know, when you, when you joggle the computer a bit and the screen lights up, mm-hmm. I did that at about two o'clock this morning, I think, <laughs> you know, rolled in the bed and the computer was still set up and kind of on my, uh, sleeping on my side and got my reading glasses. They're kind of hanging out one ear. And anyway, um, I thought a train was running out. I mean, the way the light came on oh my. in the middle of the, um, yeah. uh, kind of a deep sleep and yeah, that, that light. <laughs> Uh, so you really struck fear in me fall asleep while prepping for the show i did i was reading an article in the wall street journal you know i left here yesterday and said let's talk about that tomorrow and i try to make notes about what it was we were going to talk about tomorrow and i don't remember do you we're getting old mm. rev we don't remember as well as we previously yeah, it doesn't did. surprise me about me but you have one of those memories well i mean I, I did i mean i said let's talk about that tomorrow i walked out of the door and i forgot almost instantaneously what it was mm we were going to talk about. I mean, there, there are a lot of stories out there today. I had the um, the opportunity yesterday to speak to, to a lawyer, a very accomplished legal mind, um, someone who really and truly um, has never led me to believe he has one opinion or another about Trump. Uh, we don't go down that road. He's a friend of mine uh, from the day, my days in politics. He is, once again, a very accomplished and celebrated lawyer. He's been uh, in very high-profile politically charged legal matters uh but once again it's never and i'm not had you know a three-hour uh, you know car ride or boat ride with him where we eventually got to trump but he said you know we need trump or i despise i mean he's never let me believe he's never let me know what he believes about trump or not but i had the opportunity to reach out to him yesterday via text and he said hey this is too much to text call me at about you know 1 and i called him at about 1 and we talked for probably 50 minutes about the case. And once again, now he does not have the radio show host perspective. He doesn't have the MAGA perspective or the, um, the anti-Trump perspective. He's a, uh, kind of a, you know, a, a legally trained, very accomplished person in that field of expertise. And here's what he told me. And I didn't make any notes, but I can recount the majority of this, despite not being able to recount what we uh, <laughs> said, we we're going to talk about this morning. Um, he talked a lot about the scope of the warrant. He talked that the main point he said is when you, um, engage your listeners, make sure they understand that Trump has a right for this information to be confidential. Remember yesterday, we touched on some of the, uh, confidentiality of information, uh, that, that client lawyer privilege, uh, attorney client privilege, I think is the, uh, official way they say it in that, in that world. But, um, some of the attorney client privileged information is still, um, it still belongs to the government. When Trump's the president, any of these conversations he have or had, 
that may have been or may not have been privileged, they're still property of the government. So, the, you know, uh, to, to say, well, they took his privileged information, well, they could. But because they took the information and, and made it, uh, put it back in their possession, now they can't release that information. It's still privileged. It, you know, Trump has to agree to, to, to grant what, uh, you know, some sort of a reprieve from the attorney-client privilege. But, but I read over the weekend a lot of people got all worked up about them taking some of the information um, that was privileged. Well, it still is. It's just never belonged to Trump. Um, some of the uh, record keeping, some of the archive statutes clearly say that the, the infra- here's what he said. Uh, let, let's do this uh, in G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu Grip. Trump broke some laws, but every president that has ever left the White House broke those same laws. Some of the other people who've run for president have had more egregious violations of uh, these record keepings. He's talking about Hillary actually, um, you know, uh, what, what's the word? I mean, they, they mutilated. I mean, that's kind of the word in some of the uh, statute. Uh, mutilated some of the information with this wiping. Remember, she wiped the, the server clean. You mean with a cloth? Yeah, that's she, like, um, destroyed, she destroyed some of the phones with hammers. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember. So there are clear violations there. So when you say Trump did nothing wrong, he did something wrong. Well, there's no doubt about that. He took information from the White House. Now, now here's what he doesn't know. Did 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 Trump hoodwink the GSA? Because who who's loading the information? You got to believe it's not a high-ranking official at the the General Service Agency, right? I mean, you, you got to believe they send over a moving crew, and as part of that, Trump says, "Hey, put that box in the van." I mean, he would play this out with me. I mean, you can see that, mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, or Ivanka saying, "Hey, that's my box of stuff. Put that in the van." And, you know, Joe from GSA says... We're going to go put a red X. You yeah, take all th- the boxes th- with red X. Th- there you go. I mean, I don't know how that works out. Right. Logistically, I have no idea how that transpired. But it was standard reason that Ivanka said, these two boxes are mine. Those three are daddies. You know, I don't know what Don Jr.'s got down there. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't understand how that works. I don't have any idea how that works. And logistically, he doesn't know. But there, there's kind of a um, an argument. And it's a kind of a, um, a perpetual argument about, hey, you've got some things down in Mar-a-Lago. You've got some th- say things down in Crawford, Texas. You've got some things over in Chicago that don't belong to you. We need to get those back in possession of the uh, National Archives. And uh, the presidential light, that would apply to Hillary because she um, was not coronated. Um, <laughs> but, but still, some of, the, um, some of the archiving of information when she was Secretary of State it still belongs to the government. She had no right to destroy any of that. In fact... Um, he believes she probably broke some embezzlement, that there's some embezzlement language in here uh, about uh, confiscating information, uh, maintaining ownership of the info. Anyway, um, long story short, here's here's where I land. Um, Trump broke the law. No doubt about it. I mean, it's hard to believe he didn't take something that didn't belong to him. Um, now, once again, my friend in the legal field who knows much more about this than I said, here's what you should pay close attention to. Here's where we should really be focused. The, the, the scope of the warrant, when he read the warrant, he said that was kind of um, not alarming because I don't know if the guy likes Trump or not. He may want Trump to go to jail tomorrow. He may want Trump to be president again. He's never let me know what he believes about Trump. But he said when, when the argument they're making, the prevailing argument is we had to go get these things because Trump wouldn't give them back. It doesn't jihad with the warrant. The scope of the warrant gave them broad discretion. The, the closets, um, the, the passports, um, the 120 rooms that they were allowed 
to kind of plunder through to see what was there. And that's why he believes that, as Andy McCarthy has said on National Review and Fox News, that this is a this is kind of pretextual. I mean, this is to see if they could find anything that, you know, um, makes it obvious or apparent that Trump conspired in some sort of January 6th so they're, insurrection. They're trying to go find the crime. Sure. There, there you go. Uh, there you go. Now, he didn't say it that way because he's a legal mind. Right. That doesn't want to be as obvious. It. Sure. I mean, absolutely. So, so the point he made was if they were there to get material back and they got the material back, it's not an ongoing investigation. I mean, the investigation's over. I mean, if the warrant was to go down and get um, documentation that belonged to the government, you went down, you spent a day, you went through 120 rooms, you got the documentation back, then why can't the AG, excuse me, yeah, why can't the AG or the FBI comment now? If, if it was all about getting this, this documentation back in the hands of the government and you went down to serve the warrant and you got the documentation back in your hands, the investigation's over. But it's not. Because he believes, once again, the scope of the warrant gave them broad discretion and, and I don't want to say unilateral authority to go through whatever it is they chose to go through, but we know they got the passports, despite what MSNBC said. Uh, Trump said they got the passports. MSNBC said, no, they didn't. Saw an email yesterday where an apology from the FBI to some of the Trump lawyers about, hey, man, we, we accidentally got these passports. Two were um, invalid. One was valid. I think well, two were outdated, expired. expired. Um, the other was a valid. I think it was one he used when he was president about you know traveling abroad. Um, I don't know if the president has to use a, a you know a, a passport like everybody else does. It's kind of interesting when talking to this friend of mine. I mean, he just understands this world. Once again, he has been at the convergence of politics and law for twenty five or thirty years, and he doesn't get real worked up. He wouldn't be a good listener to wake up Carolina. It's hard to gin him up and, and convince him, hey, they're out to get Trump or Trump's the biggest criminal since, um, you know, whomever. I mean, whatever political um, foe you can think of. So that that's kind of where he's convinced me we are, that Trump broke laws. I mean, that doesn't surprise you. Trump took things in violation of the Presidential Records Act of 1978. I would imagine every president since 1978, aside of Carter, I mean, he was ready to get out of there, and they are ready to get him out of there. Whatever he took didn't matter. Um, I don't think he's revealed anything at Sunday school in Plains, Georgia, um, since then. But but so so Trump is in violation of some sort of um, law that that says the government is to maintain ownership and control of these documents. I mean, I don't think that surprises anybody. I think the most ardent Trump supporter out there believes that he probably took some things he shouldn't have taken. They were haggling over how to best get these things back. Um, some are probably personal mementos, but they do belong to the government. Trump probably as a business guy has a hard time in understanding. What do you mean that belongs to the government? I mean, that's a letter Barack Obama sent me or mailed me, or that's, that's from a, um, a big donor, you know, in days gone by, but, but a lot of that documentation theoretically and legally does belong to the government, whether Trump likes it or not, it does. Bar uh, Obama didn't like it. Uh, Obama's fighting the city of Chicago to build his library and he's got, um, numerous items in his possession that they're still arguing about. You know, Barack, when are you going to give these things back to the government? I'm not because they belong in my presidential library. Whoa, they didn't send the FBI well, of course in to they raid didn't, it? Rev. I mean, of course they didn't. You don't do that to anybody but <laughs> Donald Trump. Oh, I see. And, and, and my, my friend in law made this pretty obvious to me that these are, um, these are always, these are things that normally happen when a president leaves the White House. Now, now here's what he doesn't know. 
how hard did they work to get it back? And how willing was Trump to work with them? I mean, nobody knows that. You don't know that. I don't know that. Would it surprise you if Trump were bullheaded? <laughs> of course not. But of course I not. I would expect him to would be. It, would it surprise you if Trump said, I'm not giving that back? Trump, uh, Donald, that belongs. Uh, hey, h- here's the deal. Nobody at DOJ likes Trump. Trump doesn't like anybody at DOJ. I mean, hypothetically, let's say that's the case. I don't know. But just for argument's sake, let's say nobody at DOJ likes Trump. Trump doesn't like anybody at DOJ. But there's one agent at DOJ that likes Donald Trump, and Trump kind of likes that guy. So everybody at DOJ goes to Dave Baker and says, hey, your Trump always got along pretty good, man. Call him and tell him to give some of that crap back. You know, I mean, we don't want to go down there and do that. We don't know if those conversations happened. You don't know. I don't know. Um, he thinks the DOJ has made a grave error. Oh, but he he, okay. he believes he says how they can um, justify this. Once again, he believes that it's not about the Presidential Records Act because the scope of the warrant gave them. And he's read the warrant. I mean, he'd love to see the affidavit. He, he here's another, another argument he made to me in in this fifty minute conversation. The reason they can't release the affidavit, so they say. They said this yesterday after I talked to my friend, is because there are witnesses that would be made public. There are people who said, I know he's got these papers, and I know he won't give them back, and I know what he's done, and I know the rascal and son of a gun that he is. So somebody uh, went on the record and signed an affidavit saying that about Trump. So you've got this affidavit that would expose certain witnesses, but my lawyer friend said all you do is redact the name of the witnesses. I mean, you got a big black marker. Yeah. Just, you know, witness right through a, it. Yeah. Witness yeah. B. I mean, you know, you, whatever you got to redact, redact. He thinks that the, the FBI and DOJ have made a grave error in allowing this to be speculative for about a week. In other words, the Trump army is speculating one thing. Some of those who don't like Trump are speculating another thing. Some of the media is speculating one thing. Nobody knows. But he said from, from the information he's read and what he's gathered, Trump broke the law. But the law has historically been broken. It's not really a law. I mean, it's a statute. You see where I'm headed? I mean, the, the, the Presidential Records Act of 1978, well, I guess it is law of the land. And, and it's, it's upheld. I mean, every time the DOJ has required a president to give records back, they've done that. But never before have we seen um, the raid of a former president's home to confiscate and take back uh, some of that information uh, Andy McCarthy said this four days ago, the day or two after the raid took place, that this has nothing to do with the Presidential Records Act. This is all about um, January 6th. And he says the scope of the warrant, the broad discretion DOJ was given to the FBI was given to go through Melania's closet and end up with his passports. It's obvious they're not there just to get those documents back. They're there to get those documents back and see what else they can find in this fishing expedition that may implicate Trump in the events of January 6th. That's kind of a, um, that's not a summarized uh, report of it, but uh, this guy knows what he's talking about and has a um, uh, a 25-year career of kind of operating in that very complicated space. Let's go to the phone. Roger and Coward. Hey, Roger. Good morning, fellas. Got a good little uh, funny for you this morning. You, might, you, all, you folks have probably heard it. You keep up with all kind of stuff anyway. I don't do Facebook. Myra does Facebook. She told me a funny yesterday morning. Some lady had posted, and you probably heard it, like I said, but I thought it was funny. It illustrates how ridiculous we've gotten. The lady posted, said, I'm fat, but I tra- but I identify as petite. I am trans slender. 
that, I would, thought I would share that. <laughs> that is kind of interesting. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate that. Eight four three. Missing by not being on Facebook. Yeah. Right? <laughs> See the um. Yeah, that's one of the highlights of Facebook. Yeah, you know, yeah right. It's a lot worse than that. No question about it. Um, I thought about this. So, so if someone goes to the um. If somebody eats a meal at a restaurant, gives their credit or debit card, it gets declined, and you just say, "No, that can't be. I identify as a millionaire." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, you can't tell me my car is declined. I identify. Yes. I've told this this data mine, you know, that I'm a millionaire. How dare you uh, <laughs> attempt to embarrass me in that fashion? 843-661-0937. There's another call. Let's go there. Dale and Florence. Good morning, Dale. Hey, guys. Okay, and my big, my, my big question is always pretty much the same. Um, and, I, and, I, and I know that you haven't talked to Robert yet, or, or, or there's not a lot of polling out about how this is going to affect I did talk to Robert. Talked to Robert yesterday. Okay. Well, yeah. that's my big question is, 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 is how is this affecting polls? How is this affecting independents? How is this affecting never-Trumpers? Uh, how does this all affect the, the election coming up in November? Uh, these are the questions I have, and I don't know how long it's going to take to get that information together, but... I gotta think that, that that people, at some point, are, are opening their eyes and going, "Hmm, look at what the Democrats did this time." Even the Democrats have to be saying that, don't they? You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate that. I did talk to Robert a good bit yesterday. He's agreed to come on toward the end of this week. He's traveling. Um, I think he was at the event that Ron DeSantis was doing on behalf of Blake Masters um, yesterday. Robert's doing a lot of work with the Save America and some of the MAGA. Um, he, you know, Liz Cheney election. Um, some creativity or some clever work involved in some of that. As I sent Robert a text and he actually called me back, uh, I said, you know, what is the macro on the last week? Uh, I'm talking about across the board, you know, Republicans, Democrats, independents, uh, doesn't have a lot of polling data, but some of the preliminary reporting is very clear. I mean, once again, when they do the polling, um, let's say it's a three-day sample. I mean, they have a good inkling as to what the polling says, but they don't release it until they've really vetted to make sure they've got their I's dotted, T's crossed. They don't have the I's dotted, T's crossed yet, but they are hard at work in trying to decipher exactly what um, the implications are of what happened last Tuesday. I want to go, uh, last Monday, I'm sorry. I want to take a break here, um, Freehold. When we get back, I'll, um, I'll give you an anecdotal example of what I think has happened and, and kind of where we head from here. Um, the elections officially start. Well, not officially. I mean, candidates who have run for office always call this kind of the dead period. Labor Day is less than three weeks away. I mean, that's really when the sprint begins from Labor Day until November is when it's all hands on deck and it's on. I mean, there, there are huge investments being made in infrastructure for campaigns, Senate in particular. Um, and it happens from about Labor Day until, um, what, the second Tuesday in November or is it the first Tuesday? In November, first, first Tuesday in November. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Talking about the implications of what happened last Monday. I mean, the DOJ is going to do what the DOJ does. The FBI will do what the FBI does. Trump's legal team will do what Trump's legal team does. We're in the middle of election season. That's why it's of significance. It's not just about Trump, DOJ, and the FBI. It's about uh, elections all over the country. Liz Cheney, we hope, will get beat in Wyoming today. Um, she's the consummate never Trumper, but, but the one poll and, and Robert told me to look at this last night, the Phillips Academy has a poll. It's in Georgia. Uh, the poll began 
I think the 7th of August ran through the 9th of August. So it took in some of the, um, you know, the what happened with Trump and the DOJ. Um, Herschel Walker, I mean, the media says he's a flawed candidate, doesn't have a chance to win. This is what you get for, you know, Trump-endorsed candidates winning primaries. They're fringy. They're outlandish. They're normally um, not the best candidates the Republicans could put up. But in the Phillips Academy poll, which, once again, is the only poll I've seen since the events of last Monday, and it really, the polling started on Monday, so some of that polling data probably didn't include what happened uh, Monday afternoon or Monday evening, uh, but Tuesday and Wednesday, it was. What was the 7th of August, Rev? Look real quick and see what the 7th of August. The day it was. Yeah, what, what was day a, was August was the 7th? Um, a lot of this polling is done on like, the weekend. I think, I think it's Sunday. Okay, Sunday's the 7th. So, so some of this polling includes the uh, the raid. Some of it does not include the raid, but Herschel Walker at 45.2%. Uh, Warnock at 43.6%. Warnock is beating Walker 2-1 to one with African-American votes. Kind of interesting to me. Um, Walker is doing a little better than most Republicans do. He's an African-American. Warnock is an African-American. But 66% of all um, African-Americans are voting for the Democrat. That's better than 90. So Herschel's doing a little better with African-Americans. He's winning rural voters, Walker is, by about 21 percentage points. Not surprising there. Remember we talked yesterday about Georgia is almost two states. you got the state of Atlanta, and then you've got the state of Georgia. And the state of Atlanta is the Democrat stronghold. Why? A huge African-American population. I mean, that's just the, the nature of the state. So that's where Warnock will kill it, so to speak, in the city of Atlanta, Walker will kill it in some of the uh, rural areas of Georgia. Here's what I found very interesting. Walker is leading Warnock in it, Georgia, by five percentage points amongst suburban women. Wow. Suburban women are voting for a Trump-endorsed candidate. They're tired of seeing cities burn. Mm. They're tired of being afraid. They're tired of not seeing their kid be allowed to go back to school. It's really affected and influenced mama's world. And Mama didn't think she cared much for MAGA because it was extreme and aggressive and in your face and Trump's an ass and, and all these other things. But all of a sudden, Mama said, I'm going to give somebody else a try. And somebody else just hadn't been up for the job. So when I read that statistic, a big grin came across my face because that's who we have to see come home. I mean, the educated suburban female voter has to understand, yeah, Trump said some things and he may do some things that you find distasteful and vulgar. But Trump is a law and order president. He, he's a patriotic president. He's not a weak-kneed, you know, uh, do-what-they-tell-me-to-do kind of guy. So, so that's probably the most encouraging. Now, how much of this is about the raid, I don't know. I honestly don't know. But two days of this polling is post the raid on Trump's house, and Walker's at 45.2, Warnock 43.6, and where Walker gained the advantage was not the rural voters. He's going to win those because they're by and large Republican. Not the inner city voters in Atlanta. They're going to vote Democrat. It's the white suburban females that Walker has. I don't know if he's convinced them or Biden has, but somebody has convinced these educated female women in the suburbs to say, I tried it. I didn't like it. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Yeah, I believe the cathedral is worldwide. What is going on is happening all over the world in these so-called democracies. And I believe that um, the COVID hoax <clears throat> was designed, I think they wanted an uprising of sorts. And I think right now what uh, they're trying to create 
is uh, radicals. Yeah, they want to portray the, us as radical, extremists, white supremacists, anarchists, you, whatever word you want to use. And then <clears throat> when we have a protest of some sort, I'm expecting to see someone that is planted in the crowd to fire off a gun or something, and then you're going to see the military, the police or whatever, they will shoot into the crowd of Trump supporters or just pay flat patriots. And then the next thing you'll see is some type of martial law. They'll say that you have to have a mail-in balance <laughs> because the Trump supporters and the white supremacists are threatening violence at the polls. So to save the democracy, we're going to have to destroy it and have a one-party rule. And I believe Republicans are, um, there's a lot of Republicans in on it, too. And I think what they're looking for is when all of this happens, there will be that group of elitists, Republican and Democrat, that think alike, that always have thought alike, even though they pretended to be on opposite sides, and they want to rule us, and I think they want to do that worldwide. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. You know, that theory, I mean, I've heard other people say that that they're trying to instigate some sort. In other words, we believe that a revolution is necessary, but a revolution under our terms. What does a peaceful revolution look like? I mean, we've tried to, I don't know, dance around it. I don't know what a, a you know an organized and peaceful revolution looks like, but there are those out there uh, in somewhat the mainstream that believe they're trying to provoke and instigate some sort of um, violent response from those who are a part of MAGA or Make America, you know, um, America First. I don't have any idea of that. There, there's some things that are happening now that obviously aren't being reported. I tried to go back um, because I don't know if you, how many of you saw this yesterday, but there were some um, some hospital workers, some some medical workers at North Shore University Health System in Illinois. They filed a lawsuit in October 2021, um, basically alleging that the healthcare facility was illegally refusing to give them um, certain exemptions for taking the vaccine. Religious exemption was the majority of it. But there were about 500 um, healthcare workers that filed a suit against their employer, um, the North Shore University Health System, um, once again alleging that this employer did not give um, any credence to my, you know, wanted to be exempted from having to take uh, the vaccine. Um, they actually reached a settlement um, that that includes, I think, 27 got exempted from this, but 473 plaintiffs, I guess, um, are going to share about $10 million in a lawsuit uh, involving the, the vaccine. Um, I just wonder if this isn't the precursor to others. I mean, the government's hard to sue. I mean, it really is. Guys, COVID didn't destroy the world. The government's and their reactions to COVID. The government's overzealousness in wanting control over your and my life is what caused COVID. I don't know anybody that that um that died at a school because of COVID, was undereducated at a school because of COVID. Um, I got a buddy of mine in the restaurant business. He said, I don't have a COVID problem. I have a COVID re- a government reaction to COVID problem. I mean, they shut his business down. So if the government in its infinite wisdom chose to shut the business down, what are the legal consequences? I mean, you forever impaired the value of that business. What do you mean I forever impaired the value? Let me give an example. Dave Baker owns a business. Dave Baker has a um, doesn't have a secession plan. His kids aren't interested in it. 
They just don't want to work that hard. They don't like the business for whatever reason. So Dave has to sell it. He doesn't have to sell it, but he needs to sell it. I mean, that's kind of his retirement. He's invested all of his work life in that business. Um, may, maybe hoping his kids did it. Maybe hoping his kids didn't do it. Um, but his kids have chosen to go their own way to do their own thing. So Dave Baker's got a business here and he wants to sell it. So I come along as a buyer and I say, Dave, I'm interested in buying your business. How many do you want for it? And Dave says, a couple of million bucks. I mean, I'll show you the numbers. I think it's worth that. And I said, Dave, I don't think it's worth $2 million. What do you mean it's not? Look at the numbers here. I said, yeah, but the numbers in 2021 were zero. He said, yeah, but the government shut me down. I mean, I can't generate any profit or proceeds or, or, or revenue when the government shuts me down. And I'm going, that's just the reason it's not worth as much, Rev. I've got to consider mm-hmm. what if the government does it again? They'll never do it again. They did it once. All of a sudden, zero revenue was on the table. Yeah. A recession never made revs revenue go to zero. A depression never made his uh, revenues go to zero. So I, as a buyer, he as a seller, we have to account for recessions. Rev's got to show me the last seven years of revenue. And I've got to look at it and say, man, t- 2012 and 2013 were tough, weren't they, Rev? Yeah. I mean, we hung on and made it. You know, we cut back and did this and did that. And I didn't pay myself for a month and we didn't go on a vacation. You know, I mean, the things business people do. But all of a sudden, Rev has to address the concern that I, as a buyer, have of the revenues going from whatever they were to zero. What if the government shuts you down? The government put that on the table. Therefore, they have permanently devalued your business. If I'm a shrewd and competent buyer, I'm going to say, Rev, you think it's worth $2 million. I think it's worth a million and a half. And I think it's worth a half million dollars less because you've got to think about the day your business generated zero revenue. And I've got to consider if the government did it one time, they may do it again. So, so they have permanently, I mean, they have permanently damaged the value of Rev's business. Now, now the government doesn't understand that because nobody in the government's ever been in business to amount to anything. I mean, the majority of those folks are bureaucrats. They get a paycheck, whether, you know, it doesn't matter what happens. Uh, they're not living in, world's, in Rev's world. Now, now, they don't enjoy the benefit of uh, one day selling a business for a couple of million bucks, but that's, you know, the investment you make in uh, making the business successful. But, but you know, I want to go back because I think there's a day, and, and I, I know I'm weird this way, and I'm trying to drag you kicking and screaming <laughs> with me, but I want to go back to March 16, 2020 at some time today, because I went back and read when, when I saw this lawsuit and I think others will follow. I mean, I think there'll be a multitude of lawsuits. And that was right now. about the time the stuff started hitting the fan. I mean, they started closing oh, yeah. down and canceling sports tournaments and things right about that, that March 16th. And I can remember people, I mean, just in frustration, texting me, they're telling me I can't run my business. I mean, they're, remember the day, I'll tell you the day for me was when governor McMaster Bress's heart. I mean, it was a hard decision to make but he decided to close the beaches and the lakes. And I just remember going, wow. I mean, if South Carolina, a red state with a Republican governor and Republican leadership are are doing something that extreme, there there will be a day we have to recalculate, recalibrate, recount, revisit the the events. And I think that's what we're doing now. And uh, the CDC is changing their guidance. They they released this updated COVID-19 guidance that is basically exactly what Florida did in 2020. Remember DeSantis, Governor Death, you know, didn't care yeah. about human life yep. and how reckless and dangerous he was. Well, the CDC, and I'm telling you guys, um, I mean, I read this a lot. Very little they did worked. Very little they did was successful. Now, the media ran interference, and Bree's talking about the cathedral, and I think COVID was probably the pinnacle of the cathedral. The vaccine works. We must socially distance. Businesses must understand 
that, that closing is imperative. It's in the name of public safety. None of that was true. None of that was provable. None of that was um, research-oriented. It was all on the fly. And I'll accept some of this as having to be on the fly. But we took extreme measures and made reckless and careless decisions and destroy and destroy, completely destroyed the way people uh, in business live their lives and what their future potentially looks like. Because once again, I'm a buyer, Rev's a seller. The last thing Rev wants to do is put on the table the chance that government will one day shut his business down and his revenue goes to zero. Not a recession, not a depression, a government-ordered closing of a private business on something they were very speculative about. And remember the guy at the beach that tried to keep his business open? And it was a kind of a, they didn't send um, DHEC down. Remember that? Oh, yeah. They sent SLED. Sled. Oh, yeah. We're going to show we're going to show at the onset how serious we are about enforcing these what we found out needless, careless, senseless, out of control government edicts and orders. Take a break back in just a minute. If you want to know what the, what the yeah. new CDC guidance is, then go back and look at Florida CDC guidance Florida state guidance from 2020. It's basically an, kind of an adoption of that. It really is. Really? I mean, when the, when the media scolded, you know, Governor Death, remember Death DeSantis? Mm-hmm. Um, of course. Yeah, I mean, how reckless and careless and irresponsible he was. Um, that There's so many things in this newest guidance that reflect. It's almost like, hey, don't tell anybody, but somebody get us a copy of that Florida guidance. <laughs> and uh, and is anybody asking did. the CDC or Fauci, hey, can you explain this? No. You know, here's the tact you took against DeSantis well, and what they were doing not. in Florida. And that goes back to Cathedral. You know, this monolith that looks right. at, at the world as one. I mean, it's, you know, and then Reese is right. This is a globalist monolith. I mean, it's, um, it's the United Nations. It's the World Health Organization. It's the World Trade Organization. Um, these people make the rules, and everybody else lives by those rules. The Davos man is included in this. We're not going to have time in this hour. But in the next hour, I want to go back to March 16, because you recounted things that you had to deal with. Mm-hmm. Remember, March Madness was going on. It might have been the SEC and ACC basketball tournament, if I'm not mistaken, that preceded March Madness, and um, they stopped the game at halftime. I mean, in the middle of the game, they told everybody to go home for fear of um, COVID. It was irrational. I mean, it was unbelievably irrational. I remember at that tournament, it must have been the previous game they stopped, and then the, the Clemson Broadcast Network had just gone on the air to cover the Clemson game. They hadn't started yet, and they were still doing the pregame, and then they came back from a break. We started getting these emails from the network, and I tuned over, and they came back from break, and the guys doing the game were like, well, I guess the the tournament's canceled. They told us to go home, so this is the end of the broadcast. Yeah. We'll talk to you. We don't know when. Goodbye. Run for your life is basically exactly what the, um, what it felt the like. bureaucrats said. Let's go to the phone. Here's Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning. Uh, uh, great start off, as always, hey, covering everything. But I tell you, uh, I've I've got one comment. I, Trump never should have taken those uh, big boomer nuclear submarines down there to Mar-a-Lago <laughs> and kept them for himself. That's just, that was just wrong, and it was dangerous having them submarines pinned in down there. That's just my view on that about that. But uh, I I'm sure that uh, it'll all come out, and they'll, it wasn't a fishing expedition at all. They they're gonna just they're gonna find nuclear weapons and uh, buried under uh, Mar-a-Lago, and uh, it'll be all over for Trump. And we'll never hear from him again. 
You know, Mike, well, uh, thank you. Appreciate the call. Tucker talked a little bit about this yesterday when he said, um, I mean, that, that story got to the mainstream for about an hour, two hours, three hours, um, that Trump had possession of the nuclear codes in Mar-a-Lago in a closet with golf clubs and vest and golf shoes and, uh, you know, the likes. And, and then I think even the media, somebody, and this is, I guess, the cathedral kind of checking itself going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, we can't, I mean, surely people, I mean, they, they believe a lot of what we say despite our dishonesty, but, but even we've got certain places <laughs> that we can't go. And that story kind of, um, they backed off of that in about three hours. But for three hours, there was a narrative in the media that, you know, Trump had taken some of the nuclear, I guess the nuclear football had hit it from Biden. I mean, Biden wouldn't know where it was anyway. I mean, Trump could literally hide the nuclear football from Joe Biden and Biden not know it was hidden. I mean, that, that's kind of the state of affairs <laughs> with the American presidency today. Sad is he back? Truth. Is he out of South Carolina today or is he still in, in South think, Carolina? I think he's still a Kiowa. I did see him successfully ride a bike for about a quarter of a mile on one of South Carolina's I bet that beaches. photo op was planned yeah, on purpose and said, now you real I mean, slow. He, I mean, he was steady Eddie. I yeah. mean, he was no Lance Armstrong, but he was kind of steady Eddie. He was focused, laser focused, um, riding straight toward a That's gaggle of cameras. That's what it looked cameras. like to me, too. Is I it? mean, it's, it's proper. It, it reminds me of Baghdad Bob. Remember Baghdad Bob? <laughs> sure. When, when, you know, I mean, the, the it's, it's obvious the Iraqis are, I mean, they're, they're waving their white underwear on the end of a gun. Like, I give up. Enough of this carpet bombing, you know, um, and Baghdad Bob would come off and, and, you know, we got the Americans on the rope, mm-hmm. uh, this, this, you know, phony superpower, this paper tiger that we've been told about and, and been taught to fear, uh, it, it's, but a paper tiger. And, and there are visuals that show the, uh, what was it? The Republican guard, this elite yeah. fighting force of the Iraqi army. I mean, they're running around with underwear. The only thing white they could get their hands on to wave, like I give up, stop the carpet bombing, man, please. We don't want any part of this, um, American military. But Baghdad Bob would walk out for fear of beheadment, probably being beheaded if he didn't do it. But Baghdad Bob would walk out and say, you know, the world sees it, that, you know, the um, the great devil, the great Satan of the West, the United States has met its uh, match and is now dealing with Saddam Hussein's, you know, tactical brilliance and strategic, you know, uh, it, just, it, it was, it was, I mean, obviously it was comical. If people weren't getting killed, it would have been real comical. But but I think, you know, a lot of the media has turned into uh, allow themselves to morph into something um, somewhat similar to that. I want to go to March 16 in the next hour. I think this is such an interesting day in American history. And the reason it matters now is the um, the CDC is releasing some of the updated COVID-19 guidance. Just look at Florida 2020. Back in a minute. Okay, this is going to be hard to do, but I'm asking you to go with me. Let's go back in time. Not in a DeLorean, but, but you know, <laughs> just visually and, and mentally take yourself. I mean, it's kind of an, it's an academic exercise. It's, it's a mental exercise. But let's go back to March 16, 2020. I mean, I told you, the, kind of the, um, the red flag moment to me was the day that Governor McMaster said the beaches are closed and the lakes are no longer um, people can't go to the landings and the lakes. And I just remember going like, wow. Okay. Um, cause we'd, we'd heard, I mean, none of us had ever been through a pandemic, but we had heard that it's not, um, transmissible to the outdoors. You're kind of safe if you're outdoors. And, um, next thing you know, we're people just got extreme measures, but I want to go back to March 16. And there was a lot of uncertainty. Well, I mean, it was we uncertainty. Didn't know it was uncertain. scary. And, but I mean, <laughs> historically, I mean, the, the, the the chief medical officer of Sweden. I mean, I think he's called. I mean, there's some fancy name he has, but he's he's the Fauci of Sweden. 
when when they asked him uh, six months into the pandemic why Sweden had chosen to take such an unusual course, he responded by saying, no, the world has chosen to take an unusual course. We're doing exactly what we've always done with with, thre- with uh, the threat of a, a pandemic or some sort of out-of-control um, airborne virus. We've always segregated the most at-risk population, um, try to get the mass, uh, what is it called, uh, mass immunity, um, yeah, natural herd, immunity, herd immunity. Herd immunity, herd immunity, there you go. Uh, we knew these words like the back of our hand back <laughs> right. in twenty one. Yeah, you know, mass immunization, herd immunity, um, I'm thinking about all the language. It was kind of a vernacular of its own uh, back in the day. So let's go to March 16, 2020. Uh, that would have been about the time that Rev gets a notification from Clemson Basketball that um, they just stopped the game, man. In the middle of the game, they just told everybody, to get on the bus, get home, home, stay safe before you die. You healthy 20-year-old athletes, you, I mean, you know you're at high risk. You healthy 20-year-old physical specimens, get back on that bus, protect yourself. Uh, here we go with a debate about safety, security, liberties, and freedoms. We, the American people, are the reason that our public health officials felt they could hoodwink us. There is no way they would have convinced Americans from 100 years ago to do this. Most Americans would have said, I got to go earn a living, man. I got to go provide for my family. I've got a business to run. I've got a, a job to keep. I've got a family to take care of. But but the government, and we kind of expected this, the government said, don't worry about that. We'll take care of you. You know, we'll give you a, an enhanced unemployment benefit. We'll, we'll send you business. Uh, the businesses we just shut down, we'll turn that business into a quasi-unemployment agency. You just do what you're told. Don't worry about the money. We'll take care of that. Um, who's keeping up? You know, we got trillions and trillions in debt. Well, what's another two or three or four or five or six or seven trillion dollars in debt? So on March 16, 2020, um, Dr. Fauci, Deborah Birx, remember her, the scarf lady, and Donald Trump, um, that they basically had a press conference. Here's what came out of the press conference. A fundamental change to life as we know it in the United States of America that would disregard, well, there, there's no way to argue this, would disregard all the normal rights and liberties that we Americans have become accustomed to and expected of. I mean, is that a fair descript? I mean, really and truly. Yeah. Um, all the liberties and freedoms that we thought were guaranteed weren't so guaranteed any longer. We knew... We couldn't yell fire at a theater. We knew we couldn't walk into a bar and throw our handgun six-shooter on the, on the— I mean, we knew it wasn't the wild, wild west. We knew that we had adjusted, to some degree, our, our you know, our Constitution, amendments, and Bill of Rights, um, the amendments to the Constitution. Um, we, we knew there were certain um, limitations to these, but we never imagined what we were in store for. So during the um, exchange on March 16, uh, remember when I said Trump blinked? Yep. That's the day he blinked. This is why that, that I've tried to go back and, and study this press conference on March 16, because I believe that's the day that Donald Trump blinked. Now, let's go through this. And, and once again, why is this relevant? Because the CDC is updating their guidance, and they're basically saying everything we told you to do, for three years, probably didn't make much sense, but we did the best we could. Now, the argument I make, I don't know if you did the best you could or if you were seeking more and more control over the American people. And if I want to be a real conspiracy theorist, this was the trial run 
for every time they need to whip us into shape and make us do exactly what it is that we're supposed to do. Um, now, once again, the carrot was the money, right? I got to go to work, man. I mean, I can't close my, I can't not go to work. I got to provide for my family. Well, here's an enhanced unemployment. Rev and I sat down after the first CARES Act was passed and Rev asked me off the air. I know you read it. What do you, what do you make of it? I said, Rev looks to me like somebody can make more money, not going to work than going to work. I mean, that's what it looks like to me. And we found out the hard way and we're still dealing. I mean, I went to a place Sunday morning, Saturday morning to the beach, big breakfast. And I mean, I, I stood there. Another couple behind me gets there. They stand there. Next thing you know, you got six or eight couples. And the owner comes out and says, I apologize, but the lady um, at the cash register is also the hostess because we're short-staffed. We've been short-staffed since the pandemic began. So bless the little lady's heart. She's doing all she can. You can't get angry with her. I mean, you want to eat. You want to be fed. You want to get in and get out. But you can't be angry with the lady because she's over there ringing up three or four customers. She showed up to work. Sure, too. she showed up to work, and now she's having to do her and who didn't show up or, you know, whatever. I mean, that happens over and – I mean, that that is the story of business today in America. Uh, I'll say this, you know, um, I've got some friends in manufacturing, and they'll tell me, they'll, they'll you know, they'll – the people that come to work, they may leave at noon and not come back. I mean, they just, you know, wow. not one or two, but six or eight. I'm talking about one of these manufacturing plants. Um that what is the call-in percentage? What what is people that just don't show up for whatever reason? I mean, we've significantly changed the, the way American life is conducted. But let's go back. Trump is asked during this press conference whether restaurants and other venues should close. Trump responds. Here are his words verbatim. Right now, we don't have an order one way or the other. We don't have an order, but I think it's probably better that you don't go to restaurants. Mm. How do you feel if you run a restaurant and the president of the United States, the conservative president of the United States says, but I think it's probably better you don't go to restaurants. I'm freaking out if I'm in the restaurant business because Trump's not uh, a, a timid guy, right? I mean, if any president kind of epitomizes fearlessness, Trump is a bit politically fearless. But when he says that, um, now, now, I don't believe that, I mean, from that comment, I don't think that Trump believed that he was forcing anybody to do anything. It sounds to me like he was suggesting that's the kind of the blink. I mean, it didn't close his eyes and keep them shut and said, I don't want to see it, don't want to hear it, don't want to touch it, don't want to smell it, don't want to feel it. Trump just in his kind of inexact way says, I'm not demanding anything, but it's probably if we don't go better off, we don't go to restaurants. Um, now, now, once again, during that, I don't think Trump believed that he had ordered anything, was forcing anything on anybody at any time. A reporter asked for clarification, telling people, here's the reporter, you ready? Telling people to avoid restaurants and bars is a different thing than saying bars and restaurants should shut down over the next 15 days. So why was it seen as being imprudent or not necessarily to take the additional step offered at additional guidance? At this point, during the press conference, March 16, Trump kind of turns over the microphone to scarf lady, Deborah Burks. Um, I don't think she was paying any attention because she said something real vague uh, about virus living on hard surfaces. Remember this? Uh, don't touch cardboard mm -hmm. because the virus will be on cardboard. If you touch cardboard, you'll die before dark. Um, you know, your head will fall off and your hands. Anyway, I mean, that's kind of what we were being told. Um, so that's when Fauci pounced. 
And that second is when Fauci, Fauci said, um, well, I mean, he did. I mean, and I've, I've got the transcript in my hand. Um, Deborah Birch basically says something extremely vague, probably not paying attention, getting her scarf, exo- just because you were worried about how she mm-hmm. appeared at some of those um, appearances. Um, so Fauci um, jumps in and he says, I just want that there's an answer to this. Um, and then he says this, exactly as Fauci said it, March 16, 2020. The small print here, it's really small print. In states with evidence of community transmission, bars, restaurants, food courts, gyms, and other outdoor, indoor and outdoor venues where groups of people congregate should be closed. Those are his words. After uh, Trump kind of says, look, I'm not the expert here. And that's this is kind of the blink of Trump. You know, he blinked by saying, I'd probably not go to restaurants. And then he blinked by saying, hey, I'm going to let these experts take over. And they did. Burke stumbles. Fauci didn't. How long has Fauci waited to have this sign of control over the American people? How long has Fauci waited He's worked an entire to be this, career oh yeah, to be for this that politically moment. relevant? So Burks may not have been ready. I mean, she's worried about the scarf. Fauci ain't <laughs> worried about Jack but being in charge. And he takes advantage of that. And once again, he says the small print. It's really small print. It states with evidence of community transmission, bars, restaurants, food courts, gyms, and other indoor and outdoor venues where groups of people congregate. Keywords here, ready? Should be closed. A reporter asked a follow-up question. So, Mr. President, like Fauci, get out of the way for a second. Mr. President, are you telling governors in those states to close all their restaurants and their bars? Trump says again, well, we haven't said that yet. We're recommending a lot of things. No, we haven't gone to that step yet. That could happen, but we've not gone there yet. So I think Trump, when Fauci speaks, Trump's going like, whoa, whoa. No, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to be, I don't want to be the president told everybody to shut everything down. Um, now, now, I take it from that exchange that Trump, and, and you shouldn't be surprised at this. I mean, Trump is not the most precise person in the world. Um, he didn't believe he was calling for lockdowns. I mean, it sounds to me like in those couple of comments that Trump makes, he didn't believe he was calling for lockdowns. Um, he believed he might eventually, but in that moment, Trump sounds to me like, "Hey, man, we're, we're you know we're all nervous up here. Nobody really knows what to do. We're recommending this. We're listening to that." Fauci um, was so sure of himself that it was already the CDC guidelines. In other words, what Fauci said was already in the CD guidelines mm-hmm. and was exactly spoken. And there's a two-page PDF that was sent all over the country um, that same day, 15 days to flatten the curve. And I've got this 15 days to slow the curve in my hands. And it explicitly says that um, in small print, I mean, Fauci didn't lie. Let's give him credit. He was very honest and forthright in the small print. It says that um, that restaurants, bars, pe- places where people congregate are too close. So Fauci knew the small print was there. Trump may not have. I mean, let's be honest. Trump probably didn't know what was in the uh, in the small print, but Fauci did. Um, I'm going to speculate, total speculation, that Fauci put it in there in small print so Trump or some of his staff would not read it in its entirety. Um, So what does the fine print say? You ready? I want to read it verbatim. School operations 
can accelerate the speed of the coronavirus. Governors of states with evidence of community transmission should close schools and affected in surrounding areas. Wow. Wow. This guy that has never been elected by anybody. Who knew Anthony Fauci before that day in American history? I mean, I never heard of the guy. The highest paid uh-huh, public servant <laughs> in all of American government was unknown. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody knew what he did. How many of you knew we had a National Institute on Health? But Fauci was ready. He was prepared. He had devoted his entire life to this moment in time when he could be as relevant as he needed to be, and he already had the deal made. So so I'm going to continue. Governors should close schools and communities that are near areas of community transmission, even if those areas are in neighboring states. In addition, state and local officials should close schools where coronavirus has been identified. In the population associated with the school, states and localities which close schools need to address children's needs of official responders as well as the additional needs of the children. Older people are particularly at risk of the coronavirus. All states should follow federal guidance and halt social visits to nursing homes and retirement and long-term care facilities. Holy smokes! All of this happens on the 6th of, um, of March. He concludes the small print. In states with evidence of community transmission, bars, restaurants, food courts, gyms, and other indoor and outdoor venues where people congregate should be closed. Fauci knew exactly what he wanted to do the second he had the chance, and that was take the power from the president and, and a, kind, of, kind of hand it off to the public health officials, and, and it should have been done in concert. Now, now um, these few sentences, these very few sentences in small print overrode the United States Constitution, all-American law, and about, I don't know, ref, 500 years of progress in rights and liberties. Um, and it was spelled out to America all in small print. That was nefarious. That was intentional. That was misleading. That was a power grab from a person whom um, has redefined how we live our lives, how we conduct our affairs um, in the name of politics. And I think when you look at the CDC guidance today, uh, you look at some of the um, the Washington Examiner has a big report this morning about this um, this healthcare facility, um, North Shore University Health System in Illinois. Um, 500 employees filed a suit. 473 will split 500. Excuse me, 10 million dollars um, because they were forced to be vaccinated or lose their job if they said I want to apply for a religious exemption. They didn't receive the religious exemption, and I think this is the tip of the iceberg. Can a business owner, here's the critical question, um, the government decided to shut down bars, restaurants, um, gyms, hair salons, uh, any, any of these sorts of indoor activities where people are kind of intimate, close to one another. Um, the government, well, the government, Fauci, I mean, Fauci concluded that this is in America's best interest as a public health expert. Now, now, once again, it's, it, it trampled individual rights, liberties, and freedoms. It, it, it superseded the Constitution. In other words, Americans said, okay, I like the Constitution, but not right now. I mean, I, you know, I'm willing to listen to this guy that went the, to Johns Hopkins and knows what he's talking about. I certainly don't trust Trump on any of this. I don't trust DeSantis. I don't trust any of these, these red state governors who are not going to respect the virus as it should be respected. Well, the CDC guidance basically admits 
I mean, it's not an admittance. It's not a confessional. But but they basically, um, in, in a roundabout way, admit that everything they did, they made up. Everything they did, I mean, some was probably, you know, what they should have done. But a lot of this was needless, senseless, caused unbelievable damage to the American psyche, the American economy. We've got about 7 or $8 trillion of debt, you know, in our back pocket as a result of, you know, what we did, how we did it, the way, um, I mean, it, it eventually sanity prevailed. And, and red state governor said, whoa, we, we got, I mean, at some point in time, we have to get back to work so and, you think and that, conduct business as normal. Do you think that Fauci spent his entire professional career theorizing about pandemic and how to handle it. Sure he and, did. And then when this happened, it was like, okay, it's go time. Get out of the way. I'm in charge here. I've got the plan. And it was just theory. It's Bernanke in 2008. Bernanke <laughs> was a student of the Great Depression. Yeah. Bernanke said, Bernanke had convinced himself that the reason the country went into a, a depression was the government didn't act forcefully enough. So, so Bernanke began with 0% interest rates and um, quantitative easing and, uh, you know, the Fed bought all this debt and uh, we went into deeper and deeper in debt. Yeah, I mean, I think Fauci and Bernanke, that's kind of an interesting, we could probably do a four-hour show on Fauci and Bernanke. The world we live in, the country we um, inhabit, has probably been defined uh, or redefined by two people who have never received a vote from a single American uh for public office, and that's Ben Bernanke and, well, I mean, Jerome Powell follows in the suit of Ben Bernanke. I mean, you could even go back to uh, Alan Greenspan. I mean, the Fed chair and now the National Health Institute director have probably affected our lives more than anybody ever has. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, the reason when I read some of the CDC COVID updated guidance, it just, I mean, it's farcical. It's comical. I mean, it's, it's not comical because that means it's funny. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's unbelievable what we've allowed to happen in this country over the past, what, three years-ish? When, when there was no science of which to base any of this analysis on, Fauci was real sure of himself when he said these things. But Fauci's batting average is probably less than 20%. In other words, we got about 20% right and about 80% wrong, but we've redefined economic and political normalcy in this country and, you know, was that the test drive to see what we were willing to accept, how much of our liberties and freedoms we were willing to give up? That, that's the confusing part to me. It's not surprising that an overzealous bureaucrat like Anthony Fauci um, wants to take advantage of that moment in time. What is surprising to me is how many of us 330 million Americans just kind of rolled over and said, OK, I mean, he knows what he's mm -hmm. talking about and he's the boss. So I'll not open my restaurant until... The government says I can. I'll not open my hair salon until the government says it's okay. I'll close my gym down until the government says it's okay to open it. That is as un-American as anything I've ever been a part of. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Look, words are simply words until they become policy. And when you really think about it, um, I mean, I'll use masking as an example. I mean, I still see people wearing masks. Why? I mean, I don't understand that. I was somewhere over the weekend, and nearly everybody around me was wearing a mask. Outside, I mean, there are people wearing masks. Mm, um, I've seen it. Yeah, I mean, and I don't understand that. There's not a single study in the world today 
that shows masking um, prevents COVID spread. I mean, there's just simply not. But but the media narrative and some of the public health experts have decided that, you know, they want people to wear a mask. And that's, I mean, that's alarming to me. It's not alarming, once again, that public health officials would, uh, you know, suggest rules and regulations. But I get that. But they're kind of the business of, of regulations and rules. What's alarming to me is we, the people, were so easily convinced with no statistical data, with no proven study, um, to do what we were told to do. And that's, I mean, I guess that's, I mean, I'm somewhat of a libertarian, so, you know, maybe I see the world in a edgy kind of way, but I, I just, for the life of me, and, and the only reason I'm talking about COVID this morning is the CDC has revised some of its guidance. <laughs> it looks exactly what DeSantis did in Florida in 2020. I mean, you know, the, the, the research was not there to demand or make demands of the private sector the, the way government chose um, to do. I want to get back to Trump a second. Somebody asked earlier this morning, you know, the events of last week had what sort of effect on Trump's run for president, his um, inevitable run as the Republican nominee. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I told you I talked to Robert Cahaley a good bit, and I talked to Robert, and uh, Robert says this has been a good wait. Despite what the national media says, as Republican primary voters go, this has intensified his base, solidified his standing as the true leader, um, officially and unofficially, I guess, of the Republican Party. Chief Strategy Officer with Young Americans for Liberty, Brendan Steinhauer is with us. Brendan, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. Glad so to be in, with you. In the universe of conservative talk radio, Trump is a very popular figure still. Uh, if you listen to the mainstream media, um, he's fringy and radical and out of the norm. Um, what does the data say? since the the rating of Mar-a-Lago in Florida? Yeah, I think the, it's pretty clear that data says that his approval and his uh, support for running for president again has actually gone up since the raid on Mar-a-Lago among Republicans. So he's always had this hardcore base of supporters in the Republican Party who have stood with him through everything. Um, but he's also had a second tier that has been with him, who supported him in, the, in perhaps the primaries, but also certainly in the general elections. And those guys have sometimes solidified support, sometimes they've moved away from him. But it does appear that after the raid, a lot of that second tier of uh, voters in the Republican side have kind of come home to him, because I think a lot of them don't trust the DOJ, they don't trust the FBI, and until they see a lot more evidence, they're viewing this as a political prosecution or persecution instead of a legitimate raid. So we'll see where the facts go, and we'll see if public opinion shifts again. But at this point, it's pretty clear to me that Republican voters are standing with President Trump. Brendan, he has an intense base. I mean, I argue he's not. He, Trump doesn't have a base; he has a following. I mean, it's a little bit. It's a little bit different than anything I've ever seen in American politics. They're very rabid, very intense, very loyal. But there's still about twenty or twenty-five, or maybe even thirty percent that will not accept Trump as a nomination under any circumstance or condition. How does Trump win if those 25 or 30 percent of Republicans not just don't support Trump, but choose to go support the Democrat very actively? I mean, I'm thinking about the Republicans for accountability and the, and the Lincoln Project. I mean, how does, how does the Republican Party sort through the 20 or 25 percent who basically jump the fence and go support the Democrat? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think in the general election, uh, the Republican Party and, and the former president, the probably future nominee of the Republican Party, are going to have to hammer home the, the bad news out of the Democratic 
White House, now the Democratic Congress. They're going to have to talk about how disastrous the Biden administration was. This is going to have to be kind of an ugly campaign about who's worse and about was your life better under Trump or was it better under Biden? I think the Republicans would make the argument that even if you don't like Donald Trump or even if you've had issues with his behavior and his actions, you know, your life was better when he was president. The economy was much better than under Joe Biden. Um, I think that's going to have to be the argument because you're right. There's a there's a certain number of people that just won't support him. Now, I don't know if it's 25 percent or if it's, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 percent, whatever those numbers are. Um, I think that's going to be his biggest hang up. But also, you know, he and his team are going to have to try and appeal to those folks on that message and to say, look, whether you like me or not, whether you like, you know, the the, the character or not, the policies are what matter. They're going to have to make the case that the Trump administration will get us back to where we were prior to COVID when he was president and things were booming. Brendan, last question. I've got three kids, 32, 31, and 19. All three of my kids have given me anecdotal evidence that young people are inclined to support radical change to Washington. Now, young people are radical and, you know, older people tend to more methodical and incremental progress or change. Um, is that anecdotal or is there any data evidence to suggest that younger people are supporting, I don't want to say Trump personally, but, but the idea or notion that we can't continue with the status quo. We've got to radically change the way we um, you know, I, I don't know, transform our government from what it is to what it potentially needs to be. Yeah, I, I think there is evidence to suggest that in a kind of uh, bipartisan way that there is that support to sort of overthrow the political order in Washington. I think young people, uh, again, whether in the middle, on the right, or on the left, do have a different approach, a different view of politics, uh, and a different view of Washington, which is to you know, find ways to transform uh, the government to, to basically, um, you know, upend a lot of the establishment of both parties and, and of the D.C. political class. I think I see that everywhere we go. I see that in the surveys that are out there that are done. I see that in public polling. So young people have different views, different demands uh, when it comes to their personal lives, to how businesses operate, to how they work in this world. And I think they're applying that to government as much as they're applying that to corporate America. So I, I do think there's a lot there to that. Now, how much of that translates into support for President Trump? So far, I haven't seen a lot of evidence of that, but I do see a, a, a lot of support for transformation within within government, especially in Washington. If there's someone um, classified or categorized as young listening to the show, Young Americans for Liberty is what, and how can they find out more? Yeah, Young Americans for Liberty is the nation's leading pro-liberty youth organization. You can find us at yaliberty.org. And we're actually working with young people across the country to get them plugged into campaigns around the country. So if you want to get your start in politics, now is a great time to participate with our program, Operation Win at the Door, where we're recruiting students and young people all across America to get involved in campaigns and make a big impact this year in November's elections. Very well explained. Brendan, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. Thank you. Kind of an interesting perspective, and I, I wanted Brendan to come on this morning uh, because of uh, I put something on Facebook yesterday about my kids, and uh, you know it may be anecdotal. I don't know. I mean, I only have three kids, so that is anecdotal. <laughs> I don't have you know a thousand kids of which to sample from and do some sort of um, valid research. But my kids have led me to believe that the the sphere uh, I don't know, Rev, the universe of which they function, you know, their orbit, their their friends, their um, their realities. That there's something brewing out there now. Um, they're very sympathetic to Trump. I mean, it's interesting to me. 
And, and I recounted a conversation that we had at a funeral. I've told this story on the on the radio a couple of times, I think. But um, there there was a conversation my two sons and I had coming back from a funeral in our hometown of Pamplico. And and I didn't lead the conversation. I mean, I, I honestly didn't. I was more of a um a listener in all of this. But they began, and they kept going and going and going and going. And it was the point that I want to make is the almost the um the chuckle that they had when when I asked, I said, "So you don't think Trump's been treated fairly?" And it was almost like, <laughs> "Come on, Dad, we're not three. I mean, stop with that. Of course, he hasn't been treated fairly. Everybody knows that." And I said, "What do you mean, everybody?" And they said, "Well, I mean, you know, if thirty of us are at a party." And, and anything is brought up about, I mean, we know what it is. I mean, th- th- give us a little more credit than that. So I'm kind of playing, you know, the game a little bit. So I said, what do you mean give you a little more credit? I don't understand. I'm not 30 years old. I don't know what you think and what you believe and what your young friends think and believe. Explain a little more to me. And, and one uh, said it exactly like this, and I can recount it verbatim. He said, Dad, when Donald Trump put his hand on that Bible in January of 2017, there were thousands of powerful people in both political parties that said simultaneously, never again, never again will a guy like that put his hand on a Bible to be sworn in as president who brings that much legitimate threat to the, the world of which we have garnered control over. We've earned the right to run the governments. And I'm not talking about just our American government. I'm talking about global governments. You know, talking earlier about, is this a global phenomenon? Is the cathedral a global phenomenon? The deep state, whatever you want to re- refer. I like the cathedral. I think the cathedral really encompasses a lot of um, tentacles that need to be encompassed. But it was just interesting to me how the, the, those those kids, well, they're not kids, they're young men. I mean, they're beginning to formulate their worldviews and uh, some of their own opinions are beginning to rear its head. And, and they were just like... Of course we know what's going Give us a little more. We're not that stupid. I know that I mean, they're basically insinuating, Dad, I know you think everybody under the age of 30 is dumb. I'll assure you they aren't. We are well aware at exactly the game being played, and Donald Trump's a victim in all of this. I mean, he's the guy that shows up, that, that challenges the status quo, that says to the powerful people who have self-appointed themselves masters of the universe, you're not doing right by the American people, and something has to be done about this. They were so aware and so keenly um, tuned in to, to what you and I talk about over these airwaves every single morning. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break. Bob in Florence. Good morning, Bob. You're on the air. Hello, Bob. No, Bob. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Looks like Bob is back on the line. Bob, you there? Hey, I'm here. Sorry, guys. I had a an important incoming call. I had to switch to. Okay. Um, I apologize. Um, yeah, just just a a, a comment and an observation this morning. Well, the comment on. Uh, uh, I wanted to thank you, Ken, for mentioning uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, uh, a number of weeks back, and it kind of rekindled my memory of him. And it just so happens that uh, we'd gone to the beach for the weekend, and I was going to a bookstore, and I, a used bookstore, and I, I found uh, an old book by Hitchens. Um, it, 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 it was uh, it's entitled uh, Arguably, and it is a compilation of around 
28, 30 essays that Hitchens wrote from the beginning of his career to the end of his career, right before he passed away. And, and man, well, you know, I, I keep it down at the beach, and then we go down there. That uh, we're sitting around outside, and uh, I always read that thing because he is so fascinating to read, and and what a um, almost a prescient ability he had. Um, you, you read some of the essays from the late '90s, early 2000s, and he's just like he's predicted what's what's, what's happening now. Uh, he's a lot easier to read, I would say, than than I don't know if you ever watched Hitchens. I did when. Uh, yeah, I had yeah. to get my dictionary nearby. Really, there's one. There's one dang thing is that when you when you either read or watch Christopher Hitchens, you will come away smarter, as as opposed to listening or reading other other people in our in our universe that we have to uh, that we have to listen to. So, well, thank you for that. And uh, but he comes across totally different in print than he did in person. Yep. He 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 uh, he, he came across kind of erudite and arrogant on the television, but when you read him, it's totally different. And uh, so it's a good read. Uh, and and uh, a political comment to uh, observation, what, what is Trump going to do? Uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure if he runs, he'll get reelected uh, unless the machines dominate again. Uh, but I'm just concerned he's going to run into the same thing he ran into last time. And that is that we, you know, you've seen that movie, the Manchurian candidate, this Paul Trump, um, he, he was plagued by, I guess, the, the Manchurian subordinates. He, he's, got, he's got this whole cadre of folks that, you know, when you, when you move into a, an executive position like that, you've got to fill slots. And you've got people that you think are good, they look good, but, you know, it's like in the movie, the, the old movie, the original movie in black and white, you know, they, they, show, uh, they show the guy, the uh, Queen of Hearts, and then he, he goes into his routine. And so it's, it's like a <clears throat> like these sleepers get awakened, and uh, they sabotage your efforts. So I'm I'm just real concerned. Paul Trump, uh, um, I don't know how in the world he's gonna 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 staff everything, and and not get a whole bunch of these Fauci like people that are gonna 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 wake up one day and just bite him in the tail. What do you think? Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. You know, I was thinking about it last night. I actually made some notes to myself. If Trump were to win, I mean, let's play this out hypothetically. If Trump were to win, what's the most important thing he could do? I mean, obviously the victory lap, you know, we, you know, we showed you there'll be a big celebration about, you know, redemption and, you know, uh, the, the comeback kid, so to speak. Um, but I mean, the most important thing Trump can do is reform some of these government agencies that just don't believe they're answerable to the American public. I mean, I think that's what's got to happen. How do you do that? Well, that's an interesting quandary of which to um, consider what I would probably do is go to the business sector. And I would, I would hire someone, um, kind of a change agent in, in a sector of the economy, and I'd put him over DHS. I'd put somebody over, um, you know, transportation. I'd put, I would not hire a former mayor unless they came from the business sector. I, I would go to the private sector. I'd find me 25 or 30 or 40 very capable people who were in the, uh, I don't want to say the twilight of their career, but were financially um, not dependent upon that income, that job. They'd made a lot of money. They had security. Um, they could do something in the name of making the country better by, you know, altruism 101, so to speak. In other words, go get the guy that ran the business um, that, that, you know, made the best widget in this part of the economy and put him in charge of, um, let's say, how about, let's say, you know, the National Health Institute. 
and, and let him rebuild those agencies. Let let her rebuild those agencies. Uh, there's a trust deficit, no question about it. We don't really trust. And I'm saying we, the conservative uh, in America today, doesn't really trust the government agencies to do what they say they're going to do. Now, you can't go find a former bartender and put him in charge of DOJ, but you've got to find a like-minded lawyer, somebody who understands the legal profession, the legal community, the ramifications and consequences of um, you know uh, the, the way we litigate things in America, but but has no political. Uh, what am I trying to say here, Riff? They don't they don't owe anybody anything in the political world. They can go there um, unencumbered. I mean, they, they're not hinged to, not predicated upon. Uh, you know, I go there and do the job, and I go home. And I don't got the right people. Sure, but I mean, of course, they're still going to be accused of looking out for their buddies. But you can't thinking. worry about what they're right. accused of. They've got to you know go what there. I'm saying. Sure, I do. But they've got to go there. I mean, the, the, to me, the prerequisites are you financially independent? Yeah. Um, are you smart? Yeah. Are you competent? Yeah. Or are you afraid um, to change things that dramatic that need dramatic change? No. Okay, you're on the list. You're to be considered. And, and there's no way that there's not. 30 or 40 or 50 businessmen or women who believe in America enough and have made enough money in the private sector to kind of, you know, take two or three or four years of their life and go to work for the government in the name of making it better. I mean, to me, that would be uh, the requirement. Um, Once again, you're not going to that government agency and finding the good apple within all the bad apples and expecting them to change it. They have been too scarred and manipulated by the way the system works that they're too beholden to the system, their retirement, their pension, uh, you know, their health care, all these things. Man, I, I'll rock the apple cart, but I can't do it but so much because I got a lot at stake. I think you go to the private sector, you find people like, I mean, people, this will freak people out, people like Carl Icahn who aren't afraid to be c- kind of corporate raiders and renegades and outlaws, and you institute or you install them in these institutions of authority and just kind of let them have at it. I think that's... Uh, a great recipe. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is the number. Tuesday morning, Doctor William Bolt is with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good, Good to be here. Um, so he sends an email. Uh, the phones went out for an hour and a half. <laughs> Doctor Bolt was trying to call in uh, to congratulate us on our ten year anniversary oh. and want to know where his paycheck was. I think is what he included <laughs> in the email. But he sent a very kind and complimentary email about um ten years on the air. You know, inspiring enlightening and complicated conversations. We're talking about Christopher Hitchings during the break. Um, let me read this real quick. Hitchings was such a uh, provocateur. Did we agree that's kind of the word Excellent to explain word, Hitchings? Yeah. And Hitchings was, um, I mean, he was an atheist, but he was an equal offender. I mean, he didn't like anybody. And he let it be known that he didn't like anybody, uh, in particular, um, the Christian conservative. I mean, there was a special place in his heart for the Christian conservative. Um, to come to mind, George W. Bush and Mike Huckabee would have been, you know, born-again Christian political leaders. And uh, but once again, Hitchings was deeply bothered by the homosexual movement. I mean, everything bothered him. And he had such an expanded vocabulary that you didn't know if he was insulting you or not. Is that a compliment or an insult, Christopher? I don't know. And, um, and he was so um, provocative yeah. in the way oh, yes. he did that. But on George W. Bush, you ready? Here's his, uh, Hitchings' comment or quote on my George W. Bush. He's unusually incurious, abnormally unintelligent, amazingly inarticulate, fantastically uncultured, extraordinarily uneducated, and apparently quite proud of all these things. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to Mike Huckabee, he said, a moon-faced true believer 
an anti-Darwin pulpit puncher from Arkansas who doesn't seem to know the difference between being born again and born yesterday. So, so, so there's kind of a um, – but I want to go real quick, and then we'll get um, we'll get to bolt here in two seconds. Um, here you go. Uh, no, 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 no. I can't find this. Um, uh, I've been called – yeah, here you go. Ready? I've been called arrogant in my time and hope to earn that title again. But to claim I'm privy to the secrets of the universe and its creator, that's beyond my conceit. <laughs> so he's taking a shot at religion and, you know, fundamentalists who believe that, you know, God spoke the earth into existence and they're sure about that. But but quite an interesting character in, um, in the world of um, not necessarily political discourse, but but more society in general. Um, Hitchings had a lot to say, a lot to write. But um, but whether he was liberal, conservative, um, on our team, not on our team, Doctor Bolt, as an academic, um, there's a there's a respect we have for people who are able to write or articulate sure. verbally what it is they believe to a point that uh, inspires some sort of reaction. No, absolutely. And he was one of those guys gone too soon. But again, just a, a razor sharp wit. And again, I told you before we come here, if you were just channel surfing and you saw he was given an interview, you, you couldn't turn away. And if you only caught like the last 30 seconds, you'd be, oh, man, what what did he say the, the four or five minutes before I turned on? So just a guy who could like equally offend everybody. He just didn't give up a, a you-know-what yeah. about anything. He was going to rub your nose in it. He didn't care what you thought. He was going to go to bed and sleep at night. But again, just a, a brilliant individual who could really just cut through all the, the minutia, the garbage, if you will, and, and a guy just sadly gone way too soon. And someone who would, um, I mean, he would take religion to task, he'd take Christianity Everything. to task, and then he'd be deeply bothered by the homosexual movement in America. Uh, the, the socialization of homosexuality was something that he talked about. So, so to, to Dr. Bolt's point, um, he was not choosy about who he offended and, and how he offended, didn't bite his tongue, um, said what he believed. You know, and I remember one day he was sitting down, hair was falling out. He had esophageal cancer and was dying. I mean, I thought that he was near his death. And, and he said, look, if, if praying for me makes you feel better, for, for God's sake, pray. You know, I mean, it doesn't bother me. I'm not bothered because you believe in a God, the creator, and you choose to pray for me because it makes you feel better. But, you know, I'm not giving that the time of day. He said he was asked, you know, now that you're on your deathbed, do you reconsider some of these views you've had about religion and God and a creator and a heaven and a hell? And he said, no, no, but I'm certainly understanding that there are those of you who do. And if you want to pray for me, uh, by all means, pray. I'm just not asking anybody to think about me in their, uh, in their final hours. But I want to go back to the email because Bolt sent an email. And uh, it's kind of an interesting. He was congratulating Rev and I on, uh, man, you know, the, the team here on the uh, 10 years of broadcasting mediocrity and um, oh, no. but but he, he made an, a mention of the um the holy trinity <laughs> of political discourse andrew jackson thomas jefferson and donald j trump yeah. he included in the holy trinity <laughs> yeah. i don't know if you can say that and maybe i should i probably just got you fired <laughs> for, from a from a college <laughs> professorship a but um so why i mean i know there's some sarcasm in that yeah. but there is a lot to the phenomenon that is donald trump I mean, obviously, Jackson's legacy has been defined. I mean, it's still debated yeah. and it's still conversed about. And it's interesting to talk about that. When you talk about uh, founding fathers and American presidents, Jefferson is easily in the top three, at least one, two, or three. Um, but what about Trump makes him unique to that degree? Trump, he's just the great, the great outsider, the agitator, the guy who came along and said, oh, so you've been doing this for 200 years. We're not going to do it that way anymore. I mean, he was the one guy who 
had the guts, the courage to say, it's time for a change. And he upset the apple cart, if you will. And again, he's, I've said it before, he's mobilized. We're talking about politics. We're talking about primaries. Uh, he's, he's elevated. There's so many people now who have thought about serving in public office, running, who never thought about it before, but have now gotten involved. They're starting off at the school boards, getting elected uh, to county legislatures, municipal governments. And again, they're trying to inject some new viewpoints. You were talking about it earlier, younger individuals saying, hey, let's blow the whole thing up. And Trump was the guy who started, who lit the fuse, if you will. Is he a political revolutionary? I think so. Yes, I think that's a good word. Okay, and here's where I want to get you, because you're a historian. You know this far better than I do, and I love hearing you talk about these sorts of things. How many presidents could we debate whether they were revolutionary or not? I mean, nobody's arguing that that Bill Clinton was a revolutionary. Um, You could argue that Barack Obama in some way, shape, or form. um, I mean, I'm saying there's a debate you could have. But of the American presidents, how many, give me the top five debates to have about this president being a revolutionary or not. Well, Thomas Jefferson always referred to his election as the revolution of 1800. Andrew Jackson. There's certainly a lot of revolutionary. He's sort of the first outside a military general who becomes uh, president. Lots of Americans feared for the republic that, oh, my God, this wild, crazy guy from Tennessee is now in Washington. Signed bills with blood wounds. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, right. gun wounds, gunshot wounds and fought, things like that. Fought duels with shotguns at 10 paces. I mean, that, that's a man's man right there. They they, they broke the mold with him. Uh, you fast forward, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who in the midst of a terrible economic crisis said, the old ways aren't going to work anymore. We've got to we've got to prime the pump. The government has to be involved. You know, we're still debating whether or not it's a good thing. Ronald Reagan, certainly the Reagan Revolution, the first truly genuine conservative uh, to become president of the United States, and then sort of you sort of you sort of had just a lull. And now you got Donald J. Trump coming along. And I, I noticed you didn't mention someone of significance, but I don't think Lincoln was a revolutionary. Right. I mean, he just his. His goal was primary goal was just keeping patching up the country and didn't really have a chance to do any legislation. Had he survived, who knows what he would have been able to do. But again, his primary goal, and Lincoln is certainly number one or number two for president, for just keeping the country together, really having the the persistence. You talk about a, a bulldog. I mean, just Lincoln to so many others in the North that maybe it's time to just cut and run, let the South go. They'll come crawling back. Lincoln said, no, absolutely, no matter what it costs, uh, we're going to see this thing through until the end. Explain the Jefferson. I want to get back through these sure. five. So explain the Jefferson Revolution. If you were teaching a class in, in, in a, you know, a couple of minutes, I mean, I, obviously we don't have 50 minutes to do <laughs> an entire classroom Brief. session, but but in, in a couple of minutes, the Jefferson Revolution was what? Jefferson comes into office 1800 after winning a weird election, if you will. And so Jefferson comes in, and this is at the height of the Hamiltonian system. You know, very, very strong government, strong standing army, high taxes. And so Jefferson's, well, you don't need a large standing army. All the states have their state militias. And Jefferson at one point said, all you need the national government for is to carry the mail. And that's that's all we're going to do. So Jefferson, again, repealed all of the taxes. And then in his second inaugural, say that again, because I mean I knew that, but I want to say that again. Repealed all direct federal taxes. Listen to that, folks. Repealed all the taxes. That's right. And so you had federal taxes were reinstalled for the War of eighteen twelve, eighteen seventeen. We repealed them. The American people didn't have to worry about a federal tax collector 
until the Civil War. Correct. So, uh, one of the one of the good the glory days of American history, if you will. So again, that was Jefferson's law. We're just going to and Jefferson dramatically reduced the federal debt, and Jefferson would have he left the government with a surplus, and he had to spend fifteen million on Louisiana. It was simply too good of a deal to pass up, and so cut the national debt in half, and still had a surplus, and had an unexpected expense, an incredible expense, and so Jefferson pretty much would have been able to liquidate the debt. Uh, if he didn't have to worry about Louisiana, and if he said, hey, let's just put this surplus towards it as well. Jackson is the only president who gets rid of the federal debt. And so Jackson famously in January of 1835 uh, gives a toast at a dinner party and says, gentlemen, the debt is paid. So for the only time in American history under Andrew Jackson, there's no debt. All right, and then we have a law. We don't have another revolutionary president until Roosevelt. Yes. And I'll agree with that. Yeah, you've got I mean, there were this, good this, ones this, and bad ones this and black in hole, ones. right sure. for for a while. But and again, Roosevelt is revolutionary just because you'd had so much very very fiscally conservatives, laissez-faire. The government shouldn't be involved, and you had this terrible economic crisis, the Great Depression. And Roosevelt said, "No, this is where the government has to get involved. We're going to have to engage in deficit spending. The government's going to we're going to have to raise taxes. Uh, we're going to have to spend our way out of this." The New Deal. Right. And it's really not so much FDR's economic policies. It's it's World War Two that finally got us got us out of it. But it, it creates a new legacy. And so by the time we get to Eisenhower in the fifties, Eisenhower says he's a Republican. The New Deal's here to stay. We can't we can't repeal this. We can't uh put the toothpaste back in the tube, if you will. Was was Roosevelt <sighs> I mean, obviously, he would. Uh, historians say the reason Roosevelt did what he did is the Great Depression forced his hand sure. and led. To, but, but I mean, was that Roosevelt by nature? I mean, was Roosevelt easily coaxed into doing the things he did to integrate the government into the economy? Sure. That, that's really. I mean, when you think about the world we live in and the federal government we deal with, Roosevelt's fingerprints are all over it. Yes, I mean, oh, there, yes. there's the expansion of government, the control mm-hmm. of government. Now, the Hamiltonian Jeffersonian debate was what fifty or sixty years yeah. early in American history. The debate we're talking about now really goes back to the New Deal and President about. Roosevelt. Absolutely. What, what, yeah. But what was it was it his nature to do that, or did did he believe it had to be done because of the state of the economy and the government was the only apparatus capable of doing what needed to be done? Well, prior to that time, if you, the, the Democratic Party was sort of the small, old Jeffersonian, and it was the, the crisis of the times when the Depression starts, Roosevelt's governor of New York. And so Roosevelt now at the state level says we're going to start spending right. We've got to we've got to create some programs to get the economy of New York State moving. So New York State starts doing a lot better than a lot of the other states uh, in 1928 to 1932. This made FDR just a slam dunk choice. And so since it had worked on some level in New York State, FDR and the Democrats just now decided to apply at the national level. And then Reagan. So, so, so Reagan. Reagan's legacy is what, as far as you're concerned? And he's the first truly genuine conservative. Expound upon that. What do you mean the first genuinely, truly conservative American president? Well, again, you had someone you could say, well, Nixon sort of tried to present himself as a conservative. Nixon was. You know, his policies weren't conservative. So he would sort of talk the good game of being a conservative. Well, once he got into office, then what does Reagan do, right? All right, we're going to cut taxes. Right? Sounds kind of kind of familiar for strong national defense, right? Uh, we're gonna, only going to negotiate from a position of strength. Uh, we'll say, hey, we're going to try and do something about these social, cultural issues. Uh, we may not be able to do it in my lifetime, but abortion, school, prayer, uh, these are issues we're going to make 
front and center. And so again, for true conservatives, they had been sort of cast aside, right? Couldn't reveal themselves. And once Reagan gets into office uh, after the election of 1980, they feel like somebody is finally speaking for them, speaking their language. And that's Reagan's Reagan's great legacy. Was any revolutionary president as despised as Donald Trump? No, certainly not. I don't think any president in American history, even Andrew Jackson, has been reviled as much as, as Donald Trump. He certainly has that distinction. That's kind of interesting when you talk about the revolutionary presidents, and that's where I wanted to get. I mean, you know, I left Lincoln off my list. Mm -hmm. I mean, a great president and and kind of a mender of the nation's affairs, but not 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 radically nor revolutionary. And and, but you wonder what Lincoln would have done had he not been confronted with the issue of you know kind of putting the union back together post Civil War. Doctor Will Bolt is with us. Want to take a break? We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I mean, I give you a very non-academic, non-enlightened version of American politics. Doctor Bolt comes <laughs> on Tuesday, and Coppin's got a big scheduling conflict. I mean, he's taking on some extra work, got to do schedule. Um, you know, he's got to make a living. So, so um, Carl, I know you miss him, but he, you know, he's not here because of some um, conflicts he has. But Doctor Bolt is here, um, seeking to be fired, I guess, seeking to, <laughs> to be terminated from his job. Um, we got your back. I mean, if, if, if they, something you, happens out there, you're welcome here to um, serve at his current capacity with the same current salary. Right. Um, <laughs> Chris looking like, what are you doing? No, I, I got to answer the boss. No, don't, don't make any pledges or promises. Don't rock shakes your butt can't catch is what Rev's thinking about. So I want to get back to the, um, the, 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 the conversation we had before the previous break. Jefferson, um, Jackson. Uh, Roosevelt and Reagan. Reagan and Trump. I mean, I, I agree with that. So the four of those, um, what would they say if Reagan, Jefferson, Jackson, and Roosevelt met for dinner <laughs> and the topic of conversation was Donald Trump? What can you imagine that conversation being like? Yeah, Jefferson would probably roll his eyes. And then Jefferson, again, he is the great political theorist, but again, Jefferson believed... You, you, you kind of you, you you solve these problems over a nice dinner, some imported French wine. You don't really get down into the muck. Now, Jefferson believed in democracy and wanted to expand the franchise, but he didn't. He wasn't the guy who wasn't gonna shake hands, kiss babies, you know, play that part. And so Jefferson probably would have had several glasses of wine, and probably at some point after rolling his eyes, just smashed his wine glass um, and walked away. Uh, Jackson, probably there might've been some more common ground between him and Trump. It's like, oh, they hate you. They hated me. Why do they hate you? You're an outsider. Yeah. They said the same thing about me. Oh, they, they tried to impeach you. Well, they censured, they censured me. And why do they censure me? Because they knew they couldn't impeach me. You know, if they had the votes, they would have done that as well. FDR probably would have said, well, Hey, you're from New York. So that's right. We've got, we've got something in common. Got something in common there. You know, I was accused of having uh, dalliances, affairs, if you will, by some of my political enemies. So we've got something there uh, in common as well. Reagan, who knows what Reagan, what old Dutch uh, might say, might have said to, to President Trump if he, if he got to beat him. Certainly fiscal policies, they're certainly in line. Uh, Reagan and Trump were, of course, great, believed in big tax cuts. And so they might find, I'm sure they'd find some common ground. Okay, let's take, let's take the, um, the ideology. If America first is an ideology, 
I mean, I, I would argue there's a lot of growing up it has to do. It has to morph into a full-fledged, sustainable political belief, and uh, it's not. It's, it'll have to be bigger than one man. I mean, Trump right. is the catalyst to get it where it is today. But but take Jefferson, Jackson, um, Roosevelt, and Reagan, and and converse about America first, the ideology. Take Trump out of the equation, um, but let's talk about you know a system of government that that is genuinely about the average American citizen. The plot of the average American working class um, citizen, what what would those four revolutionaries have to say about the Trump base? That'd probably be a better way to say it. Yeah. The Trump base w- would be what to those four revolutionary presidents? Well, certainly Jackson and FDR, even though they were both men of incredible wealth, you know, never had to worry about their next meal. I mean, FDR was born with the proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. FDR's opponents called him a traitor to his class because why are you doing all of this? Why are your policies designed to help out these industrial workers, these poor farmers? Why aren't you worried about helping out your own guys on Wall Street who got in clobbered? And certainly Donald Trump, this Manhattan real estate executive, his policies, or at least he he spoke to uh, those who had been left behind, the forgotten individuals, in a way that nobody really since FDR had spoken to them. And certainly Reagan as well with the Reagan Revolution. Uh, certainly getting lots and lots of individuals forgotten, lots of Southern Democrats. Some of the Reagan Democrats. Exactly, the phrase Reagan Democrats. To come out and vote for him. So again, there are lots of sort of like parallels. Uh, if you look at the other element of America first uh, trade, here's where they don't line up with Donald Trump. Uh, Jefferson, FDR, Reagan, all in favor of free trade. Jackson was somewhat supportive of tariffs so long as it helps you pay off the debt. Once you've got the money for the debt, then we need to have free trade. And whereas Donald Trump says, no, 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 we've got these poor free trade deals. They're hurting the industrial workers. We need we need to get rid of them. So in some ways, I think they, they would line up with, with Donald Trump. In other ways, uh, they wouldn't. So a dinner conversation, there might be some head nodding, and then it might get a little testy. Okay, I, I want to go here for a second. And this is where you, I'm, I'm going to get him in trouble. No. Um, and I don't have enough money to take care of all of us, but <laughs> here, here we go. So so the world of academia has always been considered to be left-leaning. The world of media has always been considered or considered to be left-leaning. When you look at some of the um, some of the public trust of institutions, higher learning has taken a hit. Sure. I mean, a lot of conservative Americans don't believe that higher education uh, engages in in proper debate. In other no. words, um, they, they guard, you know, the conversation. They, you know, this debate is prohibited. This debate is allowed. Um, folks like myself believe that history will not look kindly upon Donald Trump because historians are normally academics and journalists. And yeah, those probably. two groups of people don't care much for Trump stylistically or um, diplomatically. So, yeah. so here's my question to you. As a fellow academic, does it concern you that someone like Trump comes along and academia seems so committed to make sure he's painted in such a negative light that Trump doesn't lose, but rather um, the significance of academia, the yeah. the relevance of academia, the fairness of academia, the balance of academia takes a big hit and it's never looked at the same again. Oh, sure it is. It is something that, that bothers me. And again, we, historians need to remember anybody in academia, our opinion of a president, it changes over time. Right after Reagan left office, most Americans had a, a dim view of him kind of coming out, uh, the Iran-Contra affair. You look at how Reagan has evolved over time in the presidential rankings. 
he's done pretty good. George W. Bush, I mean, the worst president ever when he left the office, according to some. Now, over time, perhaps because people say, well, he's not as bad as Trump, if you will. Uh, his opinion, his ratings have gone up. And so certainly with Donald Trump, three justices on the Supreme Court, young justices on the Supreme Court, look at where we are re- right now. All right. Usually when you're getting set for re-election, you, ask, you want to ask the American people, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Biden's not going to be asking that question in a couple of years. So even though lots of people are kind of have a dim opinion of Trump, give it time. Let's have this conversation maybe 10 years from now. And hopefully academics, those who do the presidential rankings, will take a step back. And again, we'll look at the thing holistically um, and realize maybe it's not as bad as we first thought. Do we need more diversity amongst faculties and college campuses? And I want to be careful here. I'm always careful to not lump Columbia in with Washington. I want to be real guarded when I say academia. Because I don't believe Francis Marion, nor Clemson, nor the University of South Carolina are reflective of Stanford or Yale or Princeton. Uh, The 30 prestigious universities in America, I do believe, have become somewhat of a monolith. Uh, I do believe that the majority of of professors at Harvard and Yale and Stanford and and maybe even Duke or Vanderbilt, these prestigious universities, I do believe that there is a a culture there that discourages vigorous debate. Um, from from a from because I mean this is a local university that we yeah. all care about and wanted to do people. well and and it's got a mission to educate people. Um, is, is that a fair well, assumption sure. that that there are there is an elite university um, yeah. academic setting and then there is the rest of us that try to be a little more um, yeah. engaging and inviting and diverse well, in, in our beliefs. Right, it's basic politics. You, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. If you look at a, a Berkeley in San Francisco, right. Everybody's far left leaning. Columbia in Manhattan, just a few Democrats there. Here in the PD, you've said this before, right? This is the most Trump district in the state. All right. So again, you, you we do have a diverse group uh, of people that we are servicing here, and so you know you, you don't talk down to them, you don't criticize them or make fun of them. Rather, you have an open dialogue. I've told you before, I've had several students come up to me after at the end of a semester and say, hey. Are you a Democrat or Republican? I can't, I can't figure out. And so, again, if they don't know my political beliefs, I'm, I'm doing a good job. And I think a lot of my colleagues do the same thing. Some will certainly wear their politics on their sleeve one way or the other. But, again, I think the large majority of us are, are open, open to debate, and we're not, gonna, we're not trying to indoctrinate our students. Do we trust the prestigious universities as much as we formerly did the Harvards, the Yales, the Princetons, the Stanfords. I mean, we've always believed, sure. uh, man, he graduated from Yale or he graduated from Stanford. He graduated from, from Harvard. I mean, they're, they're probably a cut above everybody else. Well, they would look down their nose at me. You know, where'd you get your degree? I'm from the University of Tennessee. It's like, oh, you didn't go. That's, that's where you went. And didn't play football. So That's right. I mean, that's kind of the way they look <laughs> at the rest of the SEC. I mean, really and truly. That's what it is. So, yeah. there, no, there is, a, there is a pecking order among academics and they... Some people will kind of flout their, their better degrees or their better schools. But, hey, if you want to study Andrew Jackson, that's where you go to the University of Tennessee. So I'm very <laughs> proud of that. Wish we'd win some more football games, but yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed of where I went to school. I'm very, very proud of that. But certainly, right, other ones would maybe say, oh, don't put him on this committee or don't, don't work with him. He's a UT guy. But, I mean, the, but the majority of people, and I've said this over the years, I mean, the government's run by 
people that graduated from, from these those, 20 or 30 yes, universities. And that's, absolutely. that's the problem I have. And when I go down this conspiracy road of the cathedral and the monolith sure. and the guardians of free speech, and it's not Francis Marion, it's not Carolina, it's not Clemson, it's not Coastal Carolina, it's not Coker. It's, I'm not being critical of higher education in totality, but the effect or impact that these 20 or 30 universities have on the the nation's yeah. governance it is so disproportional, sure. and that's what troubles me so much. I oh, would love to have someone graduate from Francis Marion and go on the Federal Keep Reserve the Board. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'd love for somebody to graduate from the university. I mean, there was a little bit of me, despite her being a Democrat, uh, the the candidate that Lindsey Graham was putting up for the Supreme Court. Remember? I mean, they were looking for an African-American female. Yeah. I mean, she was a yeah. University of South Carolina law degree. Wow. I mean, there's a lot of me that goes, yeah. I mean, yeah, let's put, I don't care if she's a, a Democrat or not. I mean, let's put somebody on there who's not from Harvard, who's right. not from Yale, who's not from Princeton, who didn't go uh, to Stanford. I, I just think these these universities have, ah, they've created some degree of perceived imbalance that I think is unjust sure. and, and not real. And to, to your point, there's a great Lyndon Johnson anecdote, and Johnson's giving a speech, and the speech wasn't being well received. And so Johnson says, you know, the idiot who wrote this speech, he graduated from Princeton. Uh, the guy over here who told me to deliver this speech in front of me, he graduated from Yale. But you know what? The guy who's reading the speech right now went to Southwest State Texas Teachers College, and he's the president of the United States. So, You know, and the, and the irony in all of this, I mean, nobody thought Reagan, well, I mean, some did, thought he was aloof and a little bit um, not as smart as he should have been, went to Eureka. Yes. You know, the, the, the re, I mean, this is what is so ironic about Trump. Trump went to UPenn. I mean, he went to the yeah. Wharton School of Finance. I mean, yeah. that, that's as I mean, that's as pedigreed yes, yes. as they come. I mean, UPenn's <laughs> an Ivy League school. Uh, the Wharton School of Finance is probably as prestigious <laughs> a financial institution as anybody as um, yeah. Yeah, has ever come across. I just think we've got to get to a place where we we have more. Um, I don't want to say executives in government because they don't call it administrative department heads and um, those running agencies that didn't go to Harvard, didn't go to Yale, didn't go to Princeton, didn't go to Stanford. I think there's a lot to learn by being a professor at some of what I, I'll call these, um, I don't want to say second tier, these more mainstream universities. Right, and that's what Andrew Jackson did. He fired all of these career office holders and Jackson's one stipulation is you want a government job? Did you vote for me? And so lots of guys <laughs> who found out when several office holders who committed suicide rather than let Andrew Jackson fire them. So they're jumping out of windows, shooting themselves. So. Yeah. I mean, this oh, is wow. an unusual territory. We've had a lot of things like this, and Dr. Bolster should have recounted. Thank you, my man. Hey, appreciate it. Good, Good to stuff. see you again. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You know, we're talking about some of the revolutionary presidents, um, the great presidents. What What is a great president? I mean, who who do you think? I mean, the majority of conservative Americans would say, I mean, I would imagine they would say Ronald Reagan one, Trump two. I mean, I, I bet that's how. I mean, if you ask people, uh, you know, every registered Republican voter in America today, um, who your favorite president is, or who your who you think the best president? That's a different way to ask it. Uh, forget the favorite part of it. Who do you believe was the best president of your lifetime? The majority of people living today would probably say Ronald Reagan. Trump would come in second. Um, it would be interesting to see where the Bushes would land mm -hmm. with this new voting base. 70, 75% of all Republicans now identify as America first. Um, the Bush regime was very globalist and interventionist well, in what nature. Was the you said that ranked Clinton? Clinton was number Highly. three. Yeah. yeah, Clinton was before either of the Bushes. 
Um, That's I, interesting. Well, I'm going to think, no. Yeah, it was. Clinton was third. Um, H.W. was fourth. W. was fifth. I've noticed this, talking about my, my boys and, and young people, um, radical reform is something they're very interested in. Now, now once again, blow it up. I don't know if they understand uh, some of the minutiae of government, but the younger people look at the Republican Party, and, and I think what they're excited about with Trump is this non-interventionist, because young people believe that we fought wars we had no business being a part of. I mean, it's just almost Woodstock again. You remember Vietnam and counterculture and, you know, um, the, the war protesting. And I mean, they're not doing it the way, you know, Jane Fonda and some of the others did it. They're not spitting on soldiers and, uh, you know, chastising these kids when they come back home. But I think a lot of young people question some of the decisions made by, I don't know, from, from LBJ on. Now, once again, they would have to read history about LBJ. They Some of these young people lived and are well aware of what, you know, how many, how many, they, they see a young person about their age walking around with no leg or half their shoulder blown off. And they, what happened there? Um, I got, you know, I went to Afghanistan. I went to Iraq. I stepped on a, on an explosive device and, you know, it blew my leg off. And I think, you know, they go home, they got the internet. They don't have to watch CNN or Fox news. They've got the internet. And I think they Google, why did why? we go to Afghanistan? Um, you know, why is my friend, not able to see out of one eye, can't hear out of one ear uh, because he got blown up in a desert somewhere. And I think out of that has come a deep distrust in interventionist policy, a deep distrust in what I'd call the the Bush agenda. And um, and look, I think the Bush family were, were good people. I mean, I really believe that. I think they were patriotic. I think they believed in public service. I just think they were dead wrong on intervention, and I think they were dead wrong on globalism. And when someone asks me, well, why are you such an ardent Trump supporter? It's always, I mean, it's easy. I've got this canned answer, kind of an elevator answer. It's trade, immigration, and China. I mean, I think Trump has, um, his immigration policy is spot on. I think his trade policy is spot on. And I think his position on China is spot on. Um, we don't even get to intervention. I mean, if you really want to talk about interventionism or not, um, I mean, I think there's a, uh, I think the, the Republican base today, is more non-interventionist than they've ever been. And I do think that falls into the line of globalism. I think when Trump said, you know, I'm running to be president of America, the United States of America, not president of the world. I think the Bushes believed that they were presidents of the world and their job was not only to navigate the country's political affairs, but the geopolitics of the world. And I sometimes I wonder if the Bushes believed the geopolitics of the world are more important than the geopolitics of our nation. And I think, you know, once again, I think the these presidential wars, Afghanistan, Iraq in particular, I think young people see the rest and residue of that. They see people in wheelchairs, uh, the wounded warriors and the veterans and all these other sorts of, of helping agencies. And they just say, man, that makes no sense that we sent so many 19, 20, 21-year-olds to get blown up and killed in a place that may or may not have had. You know, the question would be, how many people did Saddam Hussein kill with WMDs? You know, because that was, you know, the evil, the axis of evil. And I remember the Colin Powell speech. I mean, we know that they've got WMDs. Maybe he had them, maybe he didn't. But I think history is going to shine a quite, a quite the negative light on that episode. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Hey, Joe, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, guys. Well, yeah, Bush is the one that signed Agenda 21, so. 
that puts him right at the lead of the one world agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think y'all y'all talked about him a little bit, but I believe uh, Lyndon Johnson is probably the most consequential president we've had in modern times. He's the one that started the great society trying to eradicate poverty. Well, we spent over $25 trillion on poverty programs since that time, and we are now $30 trillion in debt. He ended the immigration system that was in place before that allowed very few immigrants up until that time because until then, they were busy assimilating from the Second World War. So he opened up immigration and, and sat there and lied to the American people and said, oh, no, this this won't increase immigration at all. won't hurt it. But, yeah, I think Johnson had more consequential service than anyone. Trump is like Reagan and all the the leaders that understand supply-side economics because that has to do with starting small business and keeping government small. You let the business, small business go, people get jobs, they earn a living, they have freedom to do what they want with their money because the government is kept in check. And I'll, I'll talk to you another day about what I think about Trump and what's going on now because time's short. Y'all thank, have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. You know, the war on poverty, uh, the, the LBJ Great Society, there's a lot of debate about was it intended to address poverty or was it intended um, to force people to become more dependent on government and create a, a perpetual voting block? Uh, you know, there's a lot of historians, a lot of intellects, a lot of academics that have written about both sides of that debate. Uh, the more I learn, the more I read, the more I try to study and, and consume, the more I believe it was never about the war on poverty. I mean, it was never to eradicate poverty. It was all about creating dependency upon government so these people would be holed into a system that took care of them. And, you know, I mean, the, the majority of this is minority-related. I mean, let's be honest. There's no doubt about that. Uh, it's not all about, you know, blacks voting Democrat, but there's a large, uh, talking about the, the Great Society, uh, which was, uh, I mean, the New Deal was in the 20s, 30s. The Great Society came along in the 60s. Uh, 64, I think, would have been the official signing of one of these civil rights bills. And as part of that was the eradication of poverty. But I, I just don't buy that. I mean, I don't think the intent was ever to truly eradicate poverty, but rather to create the highest degree of dependency on a government in human history. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, the one thing we've not talked about, we try to explain. I, mean, I had a conversation about 50 minutes yesterday afternoon with a friend of mine, lawyer, uh, in, in the public sector, I mean, he's done a lot of public sector um, litigation. He's been involved in uh, high-profile public cases. I reached out to him via text. He called me back and said, um, I, I said, look, don't don't give me a lot of legalese. I mean, give me some G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip that I can understand um, because I'm, I'm kind of politically literate, but but I'm not enlightened. I'm not woke. I'm not, uh, I'm not as educated in legal formalities as he is. And he basically said, and I know we got a call him. We'll get there in two seconds. He said that the, what he believes is happening, um, is the, the scope of a warrant 
led to a lot of discretion for the AG's office. The FBI was allowed to go into, I think, 120 rooms to closets. Um, they ended up getting passports, uh, a letter from. So, so the point he's trying to make to me is Trump probably had things that belonged to the government in his possession. But I mean, that's breaking the law. Technically, that is a violation of the Presidential Records Act of 1978. Now, now Trump is complaining about some of these confidential, these attorney-client privileged um, documents that the government has taken uh, back to Washington. He says that is, I mean, that's that's legal. That's what they should have done. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's still confidential. It just never belonged to Trump. I mean, it's always belonged to the government. Now, now he reiterated, this is normally the case with any president. When a president leaves office, they take things they shouldn't have taken. Obama did it. They're still arguing with Obama about some documentation uh, for his presidential library in Chicago. We know the Clintons did it. I mean, they took silverware and paintings and portraits and, and furniture. I think they had to reimburse at about $200,000. Once they started the foundation, peddled influence, and made a little money, I mean, they were able to pay the government back. I'm, I'm so, going to search for the news story of when they raided Chicago, where they're storing the Obama records. I'm, a, I mean, I'm, I'm, look mean, I'm sure you'll find, find it there in a second. I yeah. mean, go, go to CNN.com yeah. or MSNBC.com, and I'm sure it's um it's archived <laughs> in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. But, but no, and, and, all, and here's what he's telling me now. And once again, this guy's operated in that space. I never have. I mean, I've been investigated, and, and I guess I've been thrown out of office, but I've never been, I've been the receiver in all of that, never the giver of, of what was going on. So he believes that if this was a, uh, if this was simply about preserving documents, you know, in other words, we went to Mar-a-Lago, we got our documentation back, and, and now everything is good. We spent a day in Mar-a-Lago. We, invade, we went at 120 rooms. We served a search warrant. Um, and now we have all the documentation back in our possession. It's no longer an ongoing investigation. You went to Mar-a-Lago to get the documents that you believe Trump had, wouldn't give them back. That's pretty aggressive. But let's just, for argument's sake, let's say that's what happened. Trump refused to give the documents back to the point that the DOJ felt they had no other choice but to issue a search warrant to raid the president's home. They got all the documents back. They're back where they should be at the Department of Archives. Um, Trump violated the American Presidential Act of 1978. But but my friend says that can't be the case because they still argue it's an ongoing investigation. And they can't give commentary. They can't do an affidavit. They can't do an affidavit even if they redacted names. That's why he says the scope of the warrant and the broad discretion the warrant gave them, it's a fishing expedition. This is about... Um, January 6th. This is about show me the man. I'll find a crime sooner or later. And and once again, he's speculating, but he's speculating from a far more informed perspective than I am, an experienced perspective than I am. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. Ken, I commented on your Facebook post last night that anecdotes are nothing. Anecdotal evidence is nothing but evidence of anecdotes. I got it. I saw it loud and clear. But I have an anecdote for you. Dr. Bolt was talking about how uh, historians' view of, pre- of a president changes over time. And uh, I can remember having a conversation with my grandfather when Johnson beat Goldwater. And he told me this is about the second most disappointed I have ever been after a presidential election. He said it's just, it, it, it's not as bad as when Truman one. I mean, we, we just, Truman was horrible. We never thought he should have been president to begin with. And, uh, and, th- and then he became president. 
And I was really worried that the country would even survive his presidency. But I'm pretty disappointed that Johnson beat Goldwater. And that conversation kind of fizzled out. And four years later, we had all these riots in Chicago. Robert Kennedy had been killed. Martin Luther King had been killed. And my grandfather, four years later, said, you know, I wish Harry Truman was still president. He wouldn't have put up with his crap. So that's how how somebody's uh, attitude can change over a short period of time even many years later. Enjoy listening to your show. Have a great day. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. That's an interesting point to make. And, and Charles is talking about the comment he made. It was on my Facebook post last night. And we actually talked with someone earlier today, Brendan Steinhauer, uh, Steinhauser, who is a uh, chief strategy officer for Young Americans for Liberty. It seems to me, and all I can do is speak for um, my, two, my three kids and their interactions with you know people their age and, and their kind of network and universe and, and orbit, and it seems to me that these young people believe in radical change. Now, now I've admitted I've got a match. I've got a fuse. I would light it today, but I've got about eight or ten trusted voices that say, no, don't light it until we know what we're going to do after we blow it up. See, I've got this other theory, Rev. I believe that the left would rather be in control of a country in civil war, in complete distress and decline, than have... Um, free and fair elections where Republicans win and restore order, you know, refund the police, um, build trustworthiness back in the FBI, reform the FBI, reform the DOJ. I think the left in America today is so consumed by wanting to be in control, they don't give a rat's rear end what sort of state this country's in. Is it in decline? Yes. Unequivocally. The, the country today is in decline. There is no way to... I mean, you can't skate around and they that, seem guys. to enjoy it that sure, way. They're, I mean, they're, they're no, not talking... They, they enjoy being in charge. Really? And, and if, if the country no is what. in decline... No, I mean, bingo. I mean, that, that's it. Their, their desire to be in control of the governments of Lever outweigh any other um, reality or sensibility that, that you and I would consider. What, what do you mean? We, we can't keep doing this. We can't if we're in charge. <laughs> Even if their ideas are proven to be terrible well i mean the majority of people know their ideas are terrible i'm going to give defend a i mean i'll give you an example okay real quick got a call want to get there president biden today will sign 739 billion dollars of new spending into law the inflation reduction act it is no longer called the inflation reduction act it's called the climate health care and tax bill um so they're gonna spend 739 billion dollars uh in deficit spending i mean the fed will have to buy the debt and there'll be another, you know, nearly trillion dollars on the balance sheet of the Fed. Um, so so they're, they're saying that this is intended to reduce inflation. Well, the CBO has said it, economist after economist, the American Tax Foundation. I mean, every credible institution or, or every credible think tank has looked at this and said, uh, no, th- this is not about inflation. This is about green energy. This is about raising taxes. This is about 87,000 new IRS agents. But, but, you know, let's say the climate control is a big part of this. I mean, the left is bought into climate control. I don't know how many climate change. I don't know how much they really believe in it or they see it as kind of a means to an end. I mean, if we can convince, say, a large percentage of Americans that climate change is real and they'll buy into this. I mean, I believe that climate change is the greatest mistake this country's ever made. I think the buy-in, the investments we're making in the name of climate science is one of the greatest mistakes this country has ever made, probably one of the greatest in human history. I mean, there, you know, that we've got globalist 
strongly suggesting, encouraging, mandating at times that we abide by some of the Paris Climate Accords, some of these other um, transnational organizations that, that are, you know, the, the laws are this. Remember, Trump got us out of the Paris Climate Accord, mm-hmm. and then, you know, Biden got us right back in at the request of John Kerry. But let, let's, for argument's sake, let, let's say that this climate bill is, is not about inflation. It's not about, you know, the IRS targeting middle-class Americans. They believe the great threat in America is climate. Well, when Kerry speaks, he means it. I mean, I know he doesn't, but let's, for argument's sake, let, let's be a political theorist, and let's theorize that Kerry means it. And they're sincere. It's not about money. It's about genuinely saving the planet that you and I want our grandkids, our great-grandkids, one day to enjoy the beach, the streams, the rivers. We don't want them to burn up, you know, walk outside and burn up, uh, melt like the witch on the Wizard of Oz. Um, so so they've, we've, done a, we've done a model. I mean, there, there are multiple models out there about CO2 emissions, global warming, and the bill's impact. I mean, there's about eight or 10 models out there already in existence. If we spend the $739 billion on climate change, because about 400 of the $739 billion is in the name of green energy. I mean, it's complicated. I mean, there, there are subsidies, there are incentives, there are tax credits. There is a, a $30,000. I mean, if you convert your home to green energy, solar panels, you get a $30,000 um, tax incentive in some states that have prevailing wages and environmentally just. I mean, we've got a lot of weird language in here, but but there are about eight models that have been run. The $400 billion that we're investing in climate. Um, and once again, the United Nation has a, I, I mean, I would imagine an inflated estimate of the impact because the UN is one of these transnational globalist Davos men and women organization that want to boss us around and tell us what to do and what not to do and where to stand and, and where not to stand. But if you look at the UN's inflated estimate, and I got to believe it's inflated because they always inflate when it comes to CO2 emits and, and global warming. Here's their analysis. And there's one sentence I highlighted. We get somewhere between 0.028 and 0.00009 degree Fahrenheit reduction in temperature by 2100 by spending $407 billion in climate spending contained in the bill that the president will sign into law today. So we, the taxpayer, are spending roughly a half trillion dollars, and the United Nations, what I'd call the inflated estimate, says that the likelihood that it changes the temperature of the planet Earth. I mean, how do you fix your mouth to say that? That we believe we know precisely what the temperature of the planet Earth will be in the year 2100. We don't know what it'll be Friday. But we're going to model and spend half a trillion dollars of American taxpayer dollars on this pipe dream. This unbelievable, but once again, Rev, I said it and I'll say it again. It's not about success and failure. It's not about good government, bad government. Can we be in control? Can we decide what government does or does not do? They're drunk with power. They're, 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 they're obsessed with the ability to tell us what the government is going to do and what our reactions and responses have to be. I want to read these numbers again. I mean, they're, they're infantile. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're, who gives a rip if the planet warms up 0. 0.028, 0. 0.00, 0. 
0.09 reduction in temperature 78 years from now. I mean, that's the UN's own analysis. Mm. And I got to believe it's somewhat inflated. I'll make a prediction. I'll make a prediction that I think has as much credibility as anything the UN or Kerry or Gore or Biden say. It'll be, we'll be in a cooling phase by the year 2100. I mean, the oceans are rising. They've risen for about 15,000 years. I mean, most of the serious climate scientists, most of the serious um, uh, folks that study oceanographers, I mean, most of the people who are serious, I'm not talking about um, shysters and and grifters. I'm talking about people who genuinely aren't dependent upon government funding or, or some of these grants, specific grants to create specific outcomes. I'm talking about people who work at institutions of higher learning who genuinely, sincerely have dedicated the effort to get it right. I'm not talking about manipulated science. I'm not talking about, we'll give you this grant for 10 consecutive years if only the report shows this. There are people out there doing real good work on exploring what we're doing to the planet. And we're not doing much. I mean, we really aren't doing much at all. Uh, As I said earlier, the oceans are rising. But most serious people who aren't in on the fix say they've been rising for about 15,000 years. At some point in time, they'll stop rising, and they'll probably begin receding. The, the prediction that the planet will be cooling by the year 21,000 is probably as believable as what the UN is saying, and we're spending half a trillion dollars that they don't have that you will eventually owe. And it's in, it's in I mean, think of this, guys. This is a bill called the Inflation Reduction Act, where 60% of the money is spent in the name of climate change. Once again, the political left in America have no interest in outcome. They have no interest in success or failure. They have no interest in good policy, bad policy. Their interest, their only interest is, am I in charge or not? And that's the name of the game. Civil war, doesn't matter. If I'm in charge when the country has a civil war, that's good enough for me. Um, Lack of trust in institutions, doesn't matter. If I'm in charge, I'll put up with whatever comes my way as long as I get to be in charge of the levers of government, and that should scare the hell out of everybody listening to my voice this morning. And nobody confronts anybody about those numbers. Of course not, because everybody's in on the fix, Reb. Hmm. It's the cathedral. I told you two weeks ago, the most fascinating subject we've ever discussed on this feeble attempt at radio brilliance is the cathedral. And I would encourage anybody listening to me this morning, do a little research on your own. Don't take my word for it. There's a hundred articles out there about the belief in the cathedral, um, the expanse of the cathedral, who's in the cathedral, who's trying to expose the cathedral. I mean, I can tell you the biggest fan, the biggest friend we have, as here I go with anti-cathedralist, the biggest friend we have on the dark enlightener side is Peter Thiel. I mean, I've said it for three or four or five years. Thiel has to be in the room when Republican policy is I mean, created. It has to be. I mean, he's, he's paying the bills. He's writing big checks in the name of getting Republican candidates elected, but he's also operating the underground. I mean, Teal's operating in the dark corners of this dark enlightenment world that is trying to expose the cathedralists for exactly who they are. And it doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong. It doesn't matter if they're doing good or bad. They want to be in charge. It's power they seek, not outcome. Take a break. Back in a minute. 
843-661-0937. couple of callers held on during the break. Sorry about that. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So one thing that I would implore all of you all to do is go to your local big box um, and just go to the baby formula aisle. Uh, we talked about it a month ago, but it's even worse now. I mean, it's just not there. Um, when I think you talked about suburban voters earlier, or suburban women voters earlier, Ken, I, I think the, Repu- I mean, the Republican Party constantly misses the point. They, it's like they follow around the Democrat Party um, who, who are like a, a child pulling a, a string and just constantly uh, just going after talking points that the Democrat Party throws up. Why is the Republican Party not meeting voters where they are? I can tell you this, Ken. My wife has no concern about the the raid on Trump's house. But you know what would infuriate my wife if it was constantly put in her face? That they went through Melania's closet, that they went through her drawers. Why are we not talking about that? Why are we not talking about that? Why are we not talking the we talk about gas prices to some degree, but there's still a dollar and a half more on average in this country than they were when Trump left office. Uh, inflation is smacking this, these women in the face as they go shop for their families. Again, let's stop chasing the tail of the Democrat Party and let's make them talk about the things we want to talk about. So, thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jim. Well, I mean, the point is politics has changed in America. It is now a theatric production. I mean, it's a series. It's it's a sitcom. It's a um. It's a drama series. It's a movie. Uh, it's a moving target. And I, I think the Republicans have done a lousy job at understanding. Republicans historically have believed that the virtue of the idea, the notion of liberty and freedom, will carry the day. That that if you clearly define the difference in the two parties, this party. I mean, this party wants to trample on your liberties and freedoms, and this party does not. But, but you got to sell that. I mean, you, you've got to convince people that these are indeed um, so, some of the nuanced debates that we need to have in, in American politics today. And, and we just don't, the Republican Party does not do a good job at marketing. And the reason it doesn't do it, I mean, politics is storytelling. I mean, it really is. Look, the, look at the success of conservative talk radio. I mean, conservative talk radio spins a narrative. It tells a story. We've explained. I mean, I think I'll use Jim's point because I think it's a very valid point. Who meets the Republican voter where they are better than conservative talk radio? It's almost like, you know, conservative candidates are nervous about talk radio because the audience is a little bit radical and the host is a little bit radical and we better be, you know, we better be real careful about how in bed or some people try to paint that. us as extreme well, I mean, sure. right well, I mean, and, and and the republicans buy into that so, so i think jim is exactly right meet the voters where they are make points to the voters about real life issues um and and the democrats have done a good job of that but the republicans historically have believed that if if they explain that one party wants to trample on your freedoms and liberties and the other party wants to celebrate your freedoms and liberties, that people will decide fundamentally that this is, I mean, this is an obvious easy choice. Well, I mean, guess what? Right now, there are more Democrats in the House, that there are the same number of Democrats in the Senate. They have a Democrat vice president, a Democrat president. So if this party wants to trample on your liberties and freedoms and this party wants to celebrate your liberties and freedoms, how in the world is that party not in charge? There's a story that needs to be told. And I think Trump was a showman. 
He was a storyteller. I mean, I don't know that Trump was a great orator, but Trump did a pretty good job of meeting people where they were. How is Trump resonating with so many working class Americans? I mean, do you think Trump talks a lot about in some of these rallies, the Manhattan real estate deal? No. I mean, he talks to them about their life and where they are, and it's unbelievably relatable. And I'm telling you guys, as somebody who has run for office successfully multiple times, Trump does not have a base. He has a following, and it's unlike any I've ever seen in my life. And I believe this, Rev. I believe, and I've read some polling. I think the events of last week have not only intensified Trump's loyal following, but has added some of the uh, some of the moderately committed. I'm talking about they're not never Trumpers. The never Trumpers always a never Trumper, and you'll never change their mind. Trump is disgusting. He's vile. He's he's wicked. Uh, he's unnecessary. Get rid of him as soon as we can. Get back to political, you know, normalcy. I, I'm just, we're not doing that. I mean, I, th- there's too many people who want radical change to government, and they see Trump as a vessel, however imperfect he may be, a vessel or vehicle that gives that movement a chance to have a, kind of a quasi-political revolution. I'm talking about the events of last week. That is the um, uh, the raid of Trump serving a warrant. I mean, it went from being a raid to serving a warrant because the media said, you know, raid is a little bit aggressive in the way they do that. Um, yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, Trump was on Fox Digital and called for a little, you know, settling down of the emotions. Um, there, there's no need for violence. I've said that a hundred times, and I'll repeat it over the air right now. That it is senseless to engage in any act of violence. Vote, talk others into voting, understand your positions, and explain your positions to many others who share um, similar traits. University of New Haven senior lecturer of criminal justice, homeland security, and emergency management at the Henry C. College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Science. Uh, Kenneth Gray is with us. Uh, Mr. Gray, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, Good morning. So we're talking a lot about, I mean, since the the raid of Trump's private residence, we've talked a lot about political rhetoric. It's heated up. It's intensified. Um, The FBI believes that their their agents are more at risk. Um, How can we? Is it possible to to tone this down and have this aggressive political discourse that everybody seems to be engaging in? So President Trump has offered to try to lower the temperature of the rhetoric that is going on now. I don't know if anybody other than President Trump can do this. Uh, You know, it's almost at a fever pitch and – the, the sliding from politics over into violence can happen very quickly. And so uh, so I think it, that President Trump is absolutely right when he says that we have to lower the temperature or else something bad may happen. Mr. Gray, I agree that Trump is responsible, has a responsibility to lower the temperature. But I mean, I read polls as part of my job here. And there's a declining trust in institutions that we've been conditioned over my adult life to trust. And I'm talking about even the church, the military, higher education, um, the FBI, the CIA, the Department of Justice, politics in general. Trump is not responsible for that. How do those institutions regain the trust of the American public? I don't know if you're going to be able if the FBI will be able to regain the trust of the American public anytime soon. You know, uh, we've seen over the the course of the last couple of administrations, we've seen the the FBI being dragged into politics. 
And uh, th- this is obvious to the American public. And so uh, it is hard to recover your reputation when your reputation has been hurt by your actions. So what advice, I mean, I'm not asking you to give advice, but but you're in the business of understanding these sorts of issues and dynamics. What would you advise the American, if the American public don't believe, uh, don't trust the FBI, they believe that Trump is somewhat of a martyr or he's at least persecuted to some degree. How, what, what sort of, um, what sorts of steps can the American public take to, to make them feel better? I mean, that's a weird way to ask the question, but, but we, we don't. We don't support violence. We certainly don't support overthrowing a government. But you've got a universe of people who are deeply loyal to a candidate that they believe has been treated unbelievably different than anybody. Asymmetric justice is what I talk a lot about here. So if, if we don't, I mean, if we're not going to condone violence, we're going to discourage violence, what do we encourage people to do? Well, I think you said it earlier. Uh, if we encourage people to get engaged politically and to vote not to try to carry out acts on their own like like the gentleman did uh, up in Cincinnati uh, where he attempted to to act on his own uh, with a weapon uh, to go into the FBI office there to to wreak some type of vengeance against the FBI uh, that that is certainly not the uh, the route we want to see happen elsewhere in the country uh, instead uh, it's exactly what you said before uh, to become politically active and to vote. The last question, and, and you are a, if I'm not mistaken, you are a a member of the Society of Retired Special Agents of the FBI. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, uh, I was with the Bureau for 24 years, and now I'm retired. Okay. Everybody that I bump into that has any political interest tells me that I don't believe the rank and file of the FBI are contaminated. I think the majority of those folks are, are hardworking, decent people who want to do the right thing more times than not. It's the political hierarchy. It's those that kind yes. of communicate in Washington, do business in Washington. Uh, you know, they're talking to DOJ a lot. They're politically involved. Um is there, I mean, explain to us that line of demarcation. If there is a political hierarchy in the FBI and there is the, the, the rank and file agent of the FBI, it seems to me the untrust is about not the rank and file, but rather the political hierarchy. I, I agree with that. That, uh, that is that there is the FBI at the field uh, where agents are out working cases and they are trying to keep the country safe. Uh, and then there is the FBI of headquarters, and the FBI of headquarters has to deal in that political environment, and that is where the politics comes into play. Very interesting. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's kind of an interesting guest. I mean, somebody 25 years of the FBI, and you want to be careful when you uh, kind of paint those people in a certain light, but I do believe that there's an FBI within an FBI. I think there's an FBI of field agents that are genuinely trying to do the right thing just as a car salesman or a radio show host or a plumber or an electrician. I mean, it's their job, you know, and their job requires keeping Americans safe. And um, you're going to step on toes in the attempt to keep Americans safe. But then there's this political hierarchy. There's this bureaucratic, um, this bureaucratic element within the FBI that I think has become far too political, far too um, devoutly committed to the advice of Donald Trump. You know, it's a little bit like when somebody asked me a second ago, texted me and said, so you think Trump had a good week last week? Yeah. Why? The FBI raided his home. The attorney general personally 
recommended the raiding of a former president's home. How can Trump not be the winner in that? I mean, what does it, how much vitriol does it Normally, take? Normally, that would be bad news. Sure. Nobody I mean, wants their but, home but, raided. But how much political motivation and vitriol does one have to have harboring in their, in their soul to believe that is in the best interest of the American people? I mean, I think Merrick Garland had an opportunity to say, thank you, but no thank you. I mean, I think the guy's a crook. I think the guy's bad for the country, but he's not enticing me into that. There is no way I'm going down that road. Once again, guys, there's a lot of difference in in doing stupid things and, and becoming a criminal. I mean, the government's tried real hard to convince you that people who do stupid things are all criminals. Um, I, I just think you'd have to be real careful uh, about accusing a former president of obstruct, obstructing Congress and attempting to defraud the U.S., once again, hearsay, happenstance, you know, CNN says this. I mean, you got to be careful not to get caught up in that because your job is to prove him to, to be a criminal. Now, I think indictment's coming. I mean, I think they back themselves into a corner. I don't think they have any really? choice now but to indict. And that's going to be fun to watch a person under indictment win a Republican primary and then win a presidential election. <laughs> I mean, we could right before our very eyes have the first indicted candidate actively running for president of the United States. He wins the Republican primary. I mean, the indictment's kind of a badge of honor. But there's no way you go this far and you have that expansive and and, and wide scope of a warrant without trying to indict him of a crime. This was not about, I mean, I'm convinced of this. If this was about the Presidential Act of 1970, the, the Presidential Records Act of 1978, you've got the records back, so it's no longer an ongoing investigation. Why won't they release the affidavit, and why do they declare it still an ongoing investigation? Because it's not about that. It's a fishing expedition to see if there's anything down there that incriminates Donald Trump about January 6th. So, I mean, they're, they're going to find something there. I mean, it may be an email, maybe a, a cell phone. I don't have any idea what they'll find, but, but they, you know, that's what they're after. And I think they back themselves into a corner now that indictment is inevitable. And I think Trump gets indicted and then he announces, and we've got a man under federal indictment running for president of the United States and winning and winning. God bless America. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 